Hi there. I want to talk to you about Doug. Dude, you're okay. This one, real fucking up. Okay, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You're right. Welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris. I am your host, joined as ever by my co-host Andrew. Good evening. Hello. How are you doing today? No. <laughs> we've been. Yeah, we've that's been, my answer. Yeah. Well, we've been <laughs> discussing some things off-topic, not having to do with Brazil. That is a uh, kind of a downer. But uh, we're going to talk about. Brazil, as I just mentioned, the um, <laughs> 1985 dystopian sci-fi black comedy directed by Terry Gilliam, written by Terry Gilliam with Charles McEwen, Tom Stoppard. Tom Stoppard's a big time playwright. Is he? Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. I also think that he has a bit part in the movie. Oh, okay. It's either him or Charles. One of the writers does. Um... I'm somewhat prepared for this episode. <laughs> uh, it was produced by Arnon Milchin. The cinematography was done by Roger Pratt. It was edited by Julian Doyle. The music is by Michael Kamen. This movie had a budget of $15 million. $15 million? Yes. Okay. I think that might be a adjusted inflation. Okay. Possibly. Not necessarily. It's Not a necessarily, big budget movie. But... It only grossed about $9.9 million at the box office. Hmm. Do you know if that's worldwide? Yes, that okay. is worldwide. Okay. Uh, it was released originally in France on February 20th, 1985. Then in the UK on February 22nd, 1985. Didn't reach U.S. cinemas until December 18th of 1985. Just in time for Christmas. Just in time. And this is a Christmas movie. It is a Christmas movie. So we are uh, starting off our Christmas season here on the Cult Film Companion Podcast with uh, Mr. Terry Gilliam in Brazil. This movie was well-received mostly by critics and, in fact, was voted... Uh, the best movie of the year by the Critics Association, which ultimately led to Universal finally releasing this movie. The movie was not quote-unquote accessible enough, according to the higher-ups at Universal. Uh, Terry Gilliam notoriously took out full-page ads in Variety magazine, Basically telling people that he made this movie Brazil and that Universal wasn't going to release it and mm. that they should release it and all that hoopla and it finally got released. It didn't do too well at the box office. I saw it in an art house when it came out. I did not see it at a mainstream movie theater. I could see that. Mm -hmm. um, Up in Maine. Unfortunately, art house theaters are... Uh, not nearly as popular as they they once no, were decades no. ago. It was a wonderful thing while while it while it existed. While it ex yeah. so it didn't really have. Not that T 
Terry Gilliam has ever been a quote-unquote box office giant. Um, but but for some reason, his movies pretty much have big budgets. They the, ones, always, the ones you know about. Yeah, and then you have something like the uh, the movie that he followed this up with, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, uh, flopped hard at the box office. It did? Yeah, it did terrible at the box office. <laughs> okay, I think I saw that at, a, at, at an alternative cinema as well. I think he was coming off Time Bandits when he did Brazil. Uh, but regardless of the initial reception, in 1999, the British Film Institute rated this the 54th greatest British film ever. In 2017, Time Out magazine rated this the 24th greatest British film ever. Terry Gilliam was born in America. He is the only American-born member of Monty Python, which is... Which I didn't wi- know. Which is widely, you know, renowned for being the greatest... British comedy group ever probably yeah, yeah but yes Terry Gilliam I believe he does hold dual citizenship now if I'm not mistaken I'm pretty I'm 99% sure that he has dual citizenship now but yeah he was born in America do you know where I want to say Mich- no that's Paul Schrader okay actually it might be California yes he was born in suburban Los Angeles what yeah what <laughs> so yeah, it's the greatest British film uh, made it, by an it, American. It, it starts, it helps me put the pieces together in my head. At there least, are though. a lot of pieces to yeah. put together with this movie. <laughs> yeah. So, let's uh, quickly, before we get into uh, our, our discussion, there's a lot to talk about with this movie. Um, the cast. Jonathan Price plays Sam Lowry, the protagonist. Anti-hero or kind of every man might be a, a safer um, mm-hmm. category to place him in. Kim Greist portrays Jill Layton, his the, the literal woman of his dreams mm-hmm. that he pursues throughout the movie. Robert De Niro plays Archibald Harry Tuttle, a renegade air condition repairman. Well, that's just, I guess that's his, that's his cover. Yeah. His cover for being a uh, a so-called terrorist. Catherine Hellman plays Mrs. Ida Lowry, uh, Sam's mom, who seems to be, actually, no, strike that, is addicted to plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. And I have an interesting backstory to share with Andrew, who would probably is not familiar with the backstory, which we'll get into um, okay. In regards to this movie, she was very popular during this time in Who's the Boss on TV. Mona, mm, yeah, that's she right. Played Mona, that's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she notably spent most of her time on set, ten hours a day, with makeup and a mask glued to her face. And mm. one of the most striking images, I think that one of the images that I remember most. Most from this movie before actually seeing the movie is there's a there's a scene where her the plastic surgeon is actually stretching her face. It's yeah, like silly putty. Yeah, the way that her face gets stretched, and then he puts plastic over it. Yes, yeah, and proclaims her to be more 
beautiful, beautiful and uh-huh. younger looking immediately. And, and, I'm, and I'm thinking like she's going to die of suffocation. It reminds me of that scene in Black Christmas, the first murder. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, we'll have to talk about Black Christmas at some point in time because uh, yeah, that's uh, that's one of the most striking images: the woman getting saran wrapped, and she's never. Do you remember, do you know that she's never they never find her in the attic? Yeah, she's just up there. She's left up there throughout the entire movie. Uh, uh, that of course being Black Christmas, <laughs> not Brazil. Not Brazil. We're we, back we, to Brazil. We're back, back to, to Brazil. Brazil. Ian Holm plays Mr. Kurtzman. Sam's boss, Bob Hoskins plays Spore, a um, he works for Central Services, and Central Services is basically your go to public works department in this this dystopian future. Dystopian current world. <laughs> well, we'll get into that. And rounding out the cast is Michael Palin, who plays Jack Lint. One of Sam's, uh, pretty much his best friend. It's kind of implied that they're they're. Sam doesn't have a lot of friends, so I guess we could kind of put Jack in as the best friend. Yeah. Um, Michael Palin was, of course, part of uh, Monty Python as well. And interestingly enough, when he read the script, Robert De Niro wanted to play Jack Lint. He wanted to play Michael Palin's part. Hmm. Jonathan, who did Jonathan Price? No, Robert De Niro. Robert to, De Niro wanted to play. He him. wanted to play Jack Lint. Okay. And Gilliam said that he had already promised the part to Palin, and offered him the part of Harry Tuttle. Hmm. And it's interesting because this is notably probably the first time in his career playing a bit part. He's not. I mean, he plays an important part of the story but it's a supporting role it's a supporting role and it, it, when it comes down to the running time of this movie it's it could be said it's a bit part he's i would say he's not even in a, a maybe he's in a quarter of this movie a quarter of a movie probably i think that, yeah and that might even be stretching it when yeah. you really think about it so this movie has been compared to 1984 and Orwellian dystopian kind of world. Gilliam acknowledges that while there might be some influence from 1984, he has never read the book. So he just kind of had an understanding of what it was about. He also um, mentions Metropolis as an influence on this. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And as far as the Orwellian influences go, this movie was, at one point, developed under the title 1984 and a Half. It was also developed at one point under the title The Ministry, which, of course, references the Ministry of Information in this world. And the plot of this is about a man... That's pretty much very complacent in his place in society. He has no dreams or kind of desire to advance beyond his place in society. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't want it. He doesn't want the promotion at work. No, he doesn't want the promotion and he finally only accepts it for selfish 
reasons because of well, love, love. love. He sure, accepts okay, it for love. love. He accepts it for love. <laughs> he's he's sure. on a mission. He is on a mission of love throughout this film. He is. Yeah. Um, so this is a dystopian <clears throat> love story in a very, very bizarre world. The film opens and it says somewhere, either somewhere or sometime in the 20th century. So we have this world that's very, very unique. It's dystopian and futuristic, but also very retro. The fashion seems to be from the 40s and the 50s. It does. The technology is all over the place. Yeah, there's a lot of steampunk stuff going on. There's a lot of steampunk. The technology seems, in some places, to be extremely advanced. And And then very archaic at the same time. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but also, in some places, I mean, the phones in this world are switchboards. Oh, right. Yep. So we've got this whole kind of weird retro, it's like retro-futuristic. Futuristic yep. <clears throat> retro mm-hmm. kind of thing. We're, and we're so, some, of the, some of the citizens are British and some of them seem to be American. At least with our major characters, um, there's three off the bat that are American. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's very Including his mother. Yeah. Yeah. And She's American. He's... British. British. Yeah. And there's no mention of it. No. And I think it's very interesting. And His love interest is American. De Niro is American, of course. Yeah. He doesn't uh, bother with a with an accent. I nah. mean, you know. But it's... I, I think this is the part uh, Gilliam was trying to... He didn't want... I mean, the movie's called Brazil, but, like, is this there, city? It's no, never referred no. to as Brazil. No, I, I, I do think I do firmly think that Brazil is a state of mind that right. he's in. So I mean, he he doesn't he doesn't seem to he. I want to say he doesn't seem to dream that much. He doesn't have many aspirations in terms of dreams, but he does seem to have an imagination that rescues him from the reality of his life. Uh, I want to say almost in a Walter Mitty fashion. His dream sequences with his love interest with uh, with Jill are very Walter Mitty esque, where he's um, a hero, basically superhero. a superhero. He's That's basically right, basically a superhero. That's right. He's flying like Icarus mm-hmm. through the mm-hmm. through, through the, the world through the skies, and we've got this woman that he sees, and then she's uh, and the and the dream sequences are almost could be played out as a movie in themselves. Yeah, where you know she's captured by these. She's in a floating cage she's that's in a being pulled cage. by some very creatures with baby masks. Yes, it's and then yes, and then he battles a giant samurai, and yeah, it's very much an escape. And Gilliam very often in his movies utilizes dreams. Fantasies, okay, and memories yes, in he, very interesting ways. He does. He does. Let me let me just finish my thought with uh, with Brazil being a state of mind. That seem that's another indication that he's in his imagination a lot. Is that he keeps singing and humming the song Brazil, right? Which in his mind, I mean, when you think of Brazil, you think of tropical, you think of warm outdoors, and eventually just freedom. You get to kind of go and maybe eat pineapples and coconuts on the beach somewhere, perhaps. Um, so that's that's what I'm thinking is the title for 
the movie, where it comes from, which is a total juxtaposition with the actual world of Brazil. Yes. Which now, is an urban, which is basic. it is an urban nightmare. Yes. An urban Orwellian surveillance state police state nightmare. The original scripted intro to this movie was supposed to be a... Not he doesn't say specifically Brazilian rainforest, but rainforest or forest of some type, and they zoom in on a bug, and then all of a sudden you they zoom out from the bug and you see this this forest and it it goes larger and larger and then you see this huge machine coming that basically destroys the forest, Whoa. turning everything into pulp, and the beetle flies away and that is the bug. That ends up causing the clerical <laughs> mishap in the typewriter, <laughs> which is uh, I, I think it making made... Tuttle into Buttle. I yeah. think, yeah, Tuttle or but yeah, yeah. Um, I forget what Tuttle turns into, but it's just one it's letter. It's supposed to be Tuttle. It ends up being Buttle. Yeah, and so Buttle the wrong up... the wrong person gets taken away from his family, tortured, tortured, leaving his family completely broken. His yes. wife and children completely broken and and the love interest happens to live upstairs and is trying to find out what happened to this poor man who's been taken away and tortured and killed yeah and then she because of her questioning she becomes a suspect now as well she's she's on the list so we're gonna have a running thing in this particular episode where one of us will read one of these uh slogans or that you see throughout the whole film they're on From, walls, posters, cars, everything. So I'll start. Andrew will do the next one. But um, let's start. This is from the form number EP7-3816-3916. Excuse me, Ministry of Information. <laughs> and number one, truth is information. <laughs> Andrew, would you like to read number two? Suspicion breeds confidence. Right. So we have the lovely Ministry of Information. But going back to uh, there's a that's lot. it. We're gonna we're we do, do, gonna do more throughout the course of okay, the episode. Gotcha, we're gonna got, do them. Gotcha. We're gonna. This will be our running uh, commentary. Yeah. Uh, um, we here at the Cold Film Companion Podcast, we just kind of roll with the punches, <laughs> go with whatever. Yeah, that's right. Whatever happens, happens. That's right. Um, but going back to the... So that was the original intro to the movie, which I think would have been interesting. But going back to dreams and uh, Sam using his dreams to escape, it's very interesting that we are introduced to him in a dream. That's right. The first time we see him, he's... Flying. Flying in his dream. So And his wings, even, are like made out of copper or gold or some sort of metal so it's not even that he's um really an angel that he really has wings they're they're uh they're mechanical wings it's uh almost a, there's actually an uh an x-men character called angel yeah who has um well there's two versions of angel one where he has uh, his mutant abilities that he has grown wings then there's archangel 
I used to be a comic book nerd, so I know some of this stuff. I'm not up to it, but but back in the day when I was reading X Men comics, and Archangel had um, metallic wings, and that's kind of what oh. it reminds me of. Yeah, kind of reminds me of that. Wow. Um. Yeah. Okay. So, so we get this very cool imagery of him. So flying. he could he could be an archangel in this dream. He could be but feasibly, he, but the makeup. And his outfit, he kind of looks like he belongs in an 80s synth-pop group. <laughs> he looks like he could be a key, he could be in the backup for, like, Flock of Seagulls or something. <laughs> oh, boy. But, um, but that just goes back to, I mean, it, it's everywhere in Gilliam's films with... Um, These dream sequences. Dream sequences yeah. or memories. Yeah. And... Well, we're going to stay focused on Brazil, but it, we can't talk about Brazil without talking about a little bit about Terry Gilliam in general as a filmmaker, I don't think. So my, my introduction to Terry Gilliam was Time Bandits. I saw it when it came Time out. Time Bandits is great. Time Bandits is awesome. Yeah. I saw it when um, I was the perfect age to see Time Bandits when it came out in the movies, uh, in the theaters. And I totally dug it um it, i didn't seen anything like that before uh and i only remember bits and pieces of it it's worth re-watching just for my own sake but that was my introduction uh i saw brazil when it came out as well um and i did not like it i found it claustrophobic the my mother and my friend did appreciate it i just i wanted to forget about it uh I did see Baron Munchausen when it came out as well. I was in college and I went to see that with my friends in college um, and enjoyed it. I, I, I like his work. As far as I'm concerned, he's up there. I'm going to say it. As far as I'm concerned, he's up there with Lynch and Kubrick in terms of being uh, a really uh, prolific. That's not really the right word. A really good, good movie director. Someone who puts his heart and soul and his imagination into it. Something where you go and see one of his movies and your head is swimming in the spectacle of it. And then afterwards you're thinking about it for weeks to come. So, uh, I also saw Imagine I saw Brothers Grimm. I saw Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. I saw that in the theaters as well. I saw uh, Brothers Grimm on video or cable. So I've seen enough of his work. Uh, the following two times I saw Brazil, I saw it on cable a few years ago, and I enjoyed it. I liked it. I think it was because of the character of Jill more than anything else. I find her a huge breath of fresh air. We seem to keep seeing movies where the lead actress is a breath of fresh air. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. thank God for that. Uh, so I think I was more focused on her when I saw it. Uh, the second time and I might have seen I might have even seen the director's cut I might have seen that it was the director's cut that was advertised on cable and so I made a special effort to see it because of that I'm not quite sure um, I don't remember exactly how it ends and I know that's one of the ways you can tell which version you've yeah, seen we'll get in, yeah we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it into that. so this third time that I've seen it with you um, I I'm back to not liking it <laughs> but I but now I know why I don't like it, and we'll get into it. It's still, it's still a. I do think it's a brilliant film. Right. I want to go on record as saying I think it's a brilliant film. And and I think that's the thing. We we actually were talking about film criticism prior to this. Yeah. About how 
what Siskel and Ebert said Sis- about this. Siskel and Ebert did not like this movie. Um, but we we were talking about Siskel and Ebert and how they they basically stopped doing... I mean, it's not that they stopped doing film criticism, but the only thing that seemed to matter for a period of time was the thumbs up or thumbs down. Mm-hmm. There was there was it was either black or white. There mm-hmm. was no gray middle area, mm-hmm. and that's a whole thing we could do a whole podcast about film criticism. But my personal, but uh, they end up they ended up giving it a two thumbs down, didn't they? We got, the 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 clip cut off. But okay. according to Gilliam. Uh, yeah. Okay. They 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 gave it a thumbs down. They okay. didn't, they did actually yeah, their their review was pretty negative. Um so my personal introduction to Terry Gilliam um was I I did not realize this until years later was actually through Monty Python and not through anything that he did. Uh he started out doing a lot of the illustrations for the Monty Python Flying Circus. My introduction to Monty Python was Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which he has a bit part in, but he also co-directed. So that was my Mm. introduction. Um, After that, I saw Time Bandits, Jabberwocky, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, and... Since then, I've seen almost everything that he's done. Okay. I've seen Brazil, obviously. I've seen 12 Monkeys. I've seen The Oh, Fish- right. The saw F- that one, too. The Fisher King. I did not see that. The Fisher King, well, we'll get into it, because I have, this, these are my uh, my thoughts about Terry Gilliam. But 12 Monkeys, 12 Monkeys is is similar to Brazil Very in a lot similar. of ways. Right. Uh-huh. Twelve Monkeys, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Sure, right. Of course, I've seen that as well. I've seen, I've seen a lot. He's of done, his. He's done a lot. Of, yeah, he's done a lot of really good movies. Even when he's kind of, it's not a personal vision of his, like something like The Brothers Grimm. He was basically, he was kind. It, that's pretty much one of his only kind of like director for hire kind of movies. Really? Was the script already written? Yeah. Okay. He he switched it up and okay. he switched up, you know, he I guess Gilliamized it. Yeah. <laughs> but I've seen Tideland, which is very underrated. It's not an easy movie to watch. It's very it's it's got a lot of the visual styles that you would come to see with Terry Gilliam, but it's also one of the most depressing movies you'll you'll see you said it was darker than brazil it's darker than brazil absolutely it's it's a girl that basically uh creates a dream world to to escape from the personal tragedies and hardships that's surrounding her reality so it's not it's not a fun movie um and Brazil is kind of dark. But, an, and but another one where the theme is escape. Escaping in absolutely. your mind and escaping in your imagination. Exactly. Um, just like the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Is there a lot of that going on with that? I'm we trying have, to think. We have, a lot, we have characters basically going in and out of dreams. Okay. Characters, uh, I mean, it, they had to recast because of Heath Ledger's death, but mm-hmm. we have... Oh, that's right. We have different actors playing that's right. the same character in, that's right. in different 
I guess dreams, dream state, uh, dream sequences. Yes, and those dream sequences are connected to the reality in Doctor Parnassus, if I remember correctly. Yes, they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have not seen his most recent movie, uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, a movie that he's been trying to get made since the nineties. Mm. Um, there's actually a documentary about him trying initially to get the movie made, and it finally came out. Uh, so Terry Gilliam is very interesting because he's one of the most outspoken directors. I mean, to have the balls to call out the movie studio and full page ads and variety. <laughs> so, what are you, well, what else are you going to do? You've made this huge movie. Okay. Now, not only have you made this huge movie, the, the, you know, he probably wanted to release it in 1984. What does that mean? Did he film it in 1983? Because Siskel and Ebert, when they reviewed it, just now, you know, when we saw that clip, they said that it it had been ready to, for release for a year, for about a year. Right. So he probably wanted to release it in 1984. There may have been, I would venture to suspect that there may have been a reluctance on the studio to release a 1984 movie in 1984. But there was a 1984 movie released in 1984. But it wasn't Brazil. No, it was and the it, John Hurt version of right. which, 1984. Which is, which is not a very popular movie. I mean, I don't even know if it would qualify to be a cult movie for a podcast. Well, it's funny. I've seen bits and pieces. I haven't seen the whole thing. But, but I mean, it's not Brazil. No. Brazil would get a lot more attention in the end Absolutely. than the film version, that, that particular film version of 1984. And not to, to uh, harp on that point too much, the fact that it was thrown on, I showed you the DVD that I bought, that just one of the bonus yeah. features is the complete... Yeah. It's that complete movie is one of the bonus features on... <laughs> I know. Miracle Mile. Miracle Mile is a movie we're going to cover in the future, but I so I purchased the DVD, and it, just like in the bottom corner on the cover, it says, bonus movie, 1984. Yeah. For some reason or another, and maybe it's because the... Okay, I tried reading 1984. I couldn't get through it. I thought that it was too, it was too dry for me to... Right. to, to the writing. Um, so the, the movie might be as dry as the book, and maybe that's why it's... For one reason or another... It's not a big, high-profile film. It never. No. So it might have been buried. It might just be a very boring movie. Not quite sure. You said John Hurt is in it. John Hurt does another movie that's much more high-profile and much more uh, interesting that tackles the same type of uh, uh, motif or aesthetic or theme, which is V for Vendetta. If I'm correct, doesn't he play the president or the prime minister in V for Vendetta? Yes, he does. Yeah, yeah. So I mean that that's a that packs a Norwellian wallop that movie oh, right absolutely. there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just interesting that you know, and this actually is another thing that we seem to come across quite a bit on this show is not knowing how to market this movie. <laughs> and I, and I, I, there's been numerous movies on this that we've covered on this podcast where I'm just like. I would not want to have to market this movie. <laughs> Blue Collar immediately comes to mind. Like, how do you... Well, that was the big deal with Moulin Rouge. I followed that because it was a movie musical, the first movie musical to come around in a long time. Uh, and I was following it from the very inception. Uh, and the they did not know how they were going to market it at all. No. 
it overcame that problem uh, and became a big hit in the in its initial run. But that's another one where it's like, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with this? You know, so. Right. You have, So you have the director, you have. And a lot of money. You, a lot of money uh, in yeah. both movies. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got the guy from Monty Python who came out with Time Bandits and Jabberwocky. And that was Time... basically it? Yeah. For the time. And then, yeah, then Brazil. Brazil's a big-ass budget, too. Wow. Okay. Right. So they just kind of didn't know what to do with the movie um to the point where so just release it yeah i mean release it as a dark comedy i don't know anything they kind of undermined it though by waiting a year and then releasing it in art house movies basically though i mean come on i I think yeah uh it wasn't like i said the reason that it finally got released was that the, the critics the critics board said, said it was good. They said it was the best movie of the year. Yeah. It went on to be nominated for two Academy Awards. What were they? Do you know? Was one Best Picture? I yeah, don't think so. Think, was it? I think it was Best Picture. Really? Um, it, it was definitely for Best Costumes. It I should guess, be up for Best Art Direction, Best Costumes, Best Editing, uh, Best Picture, Best Direct. I would even put it up there for Best Direction. I would. Right. So this is something I'm going to say about Brazil, and this might be controversial. It, it, I would say that it's probably Terry Gilliam's best movie, just overall best. Really? Okay. But it is far, far, far from my favorite. Yeah. I mean, I understand now why I don't like watching it, because it's very real to me. It, I, it plays... For all of its audaciousness and all of its hyperbolic, you know, lavishness, it plays as a as a documentary for okay. me. And let me get into this a little well, bit. Well, before you get into all this. All right. Yeah. Yeah. You just quoted Terry Gilliam from the commentary. What? He said that about his own movie? He said that about his own movie. He said, I don't see this. I didn't see it as a sci-fi movie. I saw it as a documentary. <laughs> now, I have some... There some you have it. <laughs> I have some very interesting stories to back that up, but... Uh, okay. Before, but please, I just wanted you to know before you get started. That's good yeah. to hear. So, so, well, that helped. That's certainly affirming to me. Yeah. Let me... You, let you me, probably let... like it a lot more now, don't you? The movie? Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it's still unsettling. I get tremendous anxiety watching it because I feel like I'm I'm seeing my own nightmare uh in this world unfold so okay so 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 they say people like george orwell uh is it alex huxley is that the name right who wrote brave new world aldous aldous huxley that's how you say his name aldous really all right a-l-d-o-u-o-s okay all right i think it's aldous okay they say these Don't peop- quote me on that. They say these people were actually CIA assets, and they say that these stories are actually predictive programming. Have you seen the meme? Have you seen that meme where it's like this hand is taking 19- the book 1984 off a shelf, and the meme says it's time to put this into nonfiction now? Have you seen that? Okay, so this is what I'm talking about. They say that they say that certain stories like this weren't books, novels, weren't necessarily warnings. Um, that there that it was actually putting the idea into readers' heads. 
So when it actually manifests into their world, into their everyday lives later, they have a point of reference that will keep them from completely retaliating against such, such you know, such draconian um, environments. Right. So, so this this is what I see when I see Brazil. I mean, it's all kind of. I feel like in in it unner- unnerves me that it was in the eighties because I feel like we're li- living a lot of it now, and it's it's also ironic to me that the eighties seems so innocent to me compared to now, and the joke on me is that they really weren't as innocent as I thought they were at the time. It's just because I was young. Uh, exactly. Hello. Yeah. Right, right. It, it's, it really sucks getting old. Not only, you know, just because you have to deal with yourself, but you have to deal with a higher understanding, a broader awareness of the world that you've lived in and that has existed before you were even born. Okay? Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's, right, it's like, oh, my God, really? I didn't think that this was the world that I have to deal with. <laughs> I have to deal with. Um, so there, that's my deal. That's my deal with um, being uncomfortable with Brazil um, and finding it difficult to watch. Now, I do want to say the genius in the film does lie in its comedy, in its farcical aspects. Uh, it's really, you know, you can, you can choose in a way to laugh at it or be terrified by it right you know one or the other and so this is this is some brilliant movie making going on right here just 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 within that context it's left ambiguous a lot of it is left ambiguous for you to put in your own personal investment into it your own personal interest into it Mm. gilliam talks a lot about how he makes movies that he wants people to rewatch to discover different things about okay. kind of themselves within his movies. Okay. It's very interesting. Going back to the documentary type things, some of this is a bit disturbing. But so, it takes so he okay, so let me also just real quick. He takes these disturbing elements, these these frightening elements of society, and he gives them such operatic production values with such farcical elements. Um, that it makes it makes a world that is already becoming a theater of the absurd even more theater of the absurd. Right. And that he makes it so absurd. Mm-hmm. He says that, you know, that's basically what the Ministry of Information is. Just <laughs> that title, the Ministry, the, oh, the oh, Ministry yes, right. of Information. Is paperwork upon paperwork upon paperwork. Yeah. There's Paperwork for the paperwork. There's receipts for the paperwork. Yep. Red tape, red tape, red tape. He just wanted to say, he just found bureaucracy and office work and all that kind of stuff so absurd that he just put like a. You know, yeah, go ahead. And he makes it, he makes it. Any trip to the DMV will make you, you know, crazy. And I've always said going to the DMV felt Orwellian to me. I have said that before in the past. Right, because you go to, you you think you're in the right queue, you get up there, and you're like, well, no, you need form A429 You need to go over there. And then they'll send you to someplace else to be like, who told you that? That's not, you know, you don't get that form here. You get that form over there. Right, right, right. right. So go over there and bring it back. And when you bring it back, what is it stamped? Did they stamp it? Yeah. Oh, this is That's in the movie. Yeah. (laughs) 
there's a great scene where where she's trying to find information. Um, uh, Jill Layton is trying to find information about Buttle, her neighbor that was mistaken taken, for Tuttle. Tuttle taken off, and um, yeah, she's not been. It's just it's basically the runaround. Yeah, passing the buck, passing the hot potato. Yeah, like I don't want to be with an underlying um concept of you know i hope i hope you give up kind of thing you know let's just you know if how much paperwork is it worth before you actually just give it up right and that's so how much is you know invested in the person actually giving up along right. the way so, a lot so this movie simultaneously is very ambiguous but also will hit you over the head with its themes mm-hmm. over and over again mm-hmm. because it is a lot of it is like i said um Oh, we said this off mic, so I can mention it now. So we're not given any background to to how society became this way. Not within the context of Brazil. I don't need one. No, but, but go ahead. But I'm just saying that it. That's why it's so it's so ambiguous as it it could be. Pretty much, it's a nameless city. Yeah, probably. I mean, if you really had to like stick it to it, you know, like like really stick something on it. Probably London, New York, but more London than New York. Right. But, and um, yeah. I think that's because of uh, that that the 80s. This was, you know, I was a youngin, mm-hmm. but the, 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 that was the Thatcher. The Thatcher Thatcher years. regime. Yes, it was. Or a lot of bureaucracy. It certainly was. And there was a lot. And a lot <laughs> no accountability. No, no accountability. And she was called the Iron Lady until she raised, I think she raised taxes for the workers in the coal mines. And they retaliated. They simply did not accept it. And that type of action brought a reform to that, uh, to that tax that tax increase where they said, okay, well, all right, we won't do it. We're seeing stuff like that now even. Right. Yeah. So... This is one of those movies. Um, it was interesting. I watched a Q and A with Terry Gilliam about this, and, and one of the questions was, "Well, do you consider nineteen? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Do you consider Brazil to be ahead of its time?" A lot of people have said that. He goes, "No, it's very much of that time." Yeah. I just think that some people didn't realize it so, until now. I mean, yeah. I mean, another movie that we that we recorded twice and didn't release was after hours mm. released around the same time and also ha- has similar implications in it where it's um a world where you can't escape basically yep. and not only can't you escape you're going to be watched you're going to be watched you right. know one way or another um and then eventually they're coming for you, <laughs> basically. I mean, there is well, that the ministry, hanging in the air. The Ministry of Information, the implication with the amount of paper, we see the amount of paperwork for one individual, but then we're immediately cut to the, the actual Ministry of Information. The implication is that this is happening to hundreds of people right. all over right, right, wherever right, right. this this, right. this and place I, is. I gave I gave some thought to what you just said of, since we've watched Brazil, and I wanted to come up with this scenario because I think this is I think this is kind of part and parcel or case in point rather of what we're talking about. So imagine imagine you have a fight with your wife. Okay, you and your wife go off to opposite ends of the apartment or opposite ends of the house and, and you text your respective friends about the fight, okay? Now, 
What if there's a third party who can just tap in at a moment's notice to both of your cell phones and read those texts that each of you have uh, respectively sent to your friends, respective friends? That third party now knows more about the two of you and the fight you had than either of you, actually, because they know what the other party has said to their friends as well as what you have said to your friends. Mm. So this is this is what we're talking about. Right. This is it. So before we get too far off, the documentary aspect of this, when he said it was a documentary, I got some interesting stories to hit you with. Okay. You know what? Can we, can I take a quick bathroom break? I'm sorry. Sure. We can edit this out. I... All right. And we're back. So the documentary aspects of this movie, um, Andrew, you, you said it felt very much like a documentary. Terry Gilliam said it's not really a sci-fi movie. It was very much a documentary. <laughs> That's so hilarious. Some, I think here, it's hilarious that he, he says that. Here are some of the stories that have led to um, aspects of the film, the most disturbing of which is paying for your torture and incarceration. Right. From the Ministry of Information. Right. That happens. And there are these little footnote moments in the plot, too, where it's like, oh, I'm sorry, we made a mistake. We need to refund you the money you paid for your torture. (laughs) Isn't that what the check to Tuttle is all about? Yeah, that was a refund for her husband that they uh, accidentally killed during interrogation. And Uh, so they refund him the charge they gave him for the interrogation and the torture. Yes. (laughs) Aren't they sweet? Oh, man. Let's give it to his wife. And then, like, she doesn't have a bank account. So it's like, how are we going to, you know. Yeah, All we right. got to get rid of this. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the aspects that um, he read about it happening actually back in the Middle Ages with, with certain. And then more, re- more recently, this, is, this happens in some very uh, dicey parts of the world, we'll say. Wow. Um, yes, they, they will charge you for your, and if you need, if you, not the taxpayers paying for incarceration, you, you're paying for your own incarceration. And in in this movie, you you're if you need to be interrogated, you have to you're being charged to be interrogated. Right, and, like that scene where it's like, isn't he swing? Isn't he swinging on a hook? And yes. you see it from his point of view. And he's swinging from office to office to office where there's someone behind a desk explaining how he's going to be charged. Right. And it, they, they start out with the different charges. And then it, then it starts to escalate to business people saying, well, how are you going to afford this? Mm. It's very, very... How are you going to afford your own torture? Yes. <laughs> um, so Well, I can't afford it. Does that mean I don't get tortured? Yeah. <laughs> who's going to foot the bill for this? So... There's that aspect that, that he took from real life. Wow. Now, the pl- an interesting, this this one is a much, well, it's still kind of bad, but <laughs> it's a little bit more humorous. The whole plastic surgery type deal came from the fact that he's always had this, he's always had it out for plastic surgeons. And this comes from his real life. Well, he lived in LA. Well, well. Yeah. His father had a growth on his ear, and he went to a quote-unquote acid man. Now, the, the way that this worked is that they applied the little bit of acid, put a bandage on his ear, sent his father 
across the street to the park and said, come back in an hour. His father was in excruciating pain throughout the entire time, came back, they undid the bandage, and it had rotted away part of his ear. So then he has to go to a quote-unquote knife man to have reconstructive surgery for his ear, which goes to the whole... So we're oh. seeing his mom. Oh, that's pretty personal right there. Oh, yeah. Whoa. So his mom goes to this one plastic surgeon. And it was probably the 1950s or 40s when it looks like this movie is, is set. Definitely. Like, that, that, you that know. Would, that would yeah, up. yeah. So in the movie, his mom, there's two different, two different people that we see that are pretty much addicted to plastic surgery. His mom and then his mom's best friend. That's right. Now, and with his her, mom yeah. gets increasingly younger looking throughout the movie, and her poor friend is basically wasting away. And she's seeing someone who does acid treatment. Does he's the acid? Yes. So there's that. There's that. Like I said, this is very much like he just took from real life and said that this really happens. <laughs> the funny scene. There's a uh, a funny scene where a dog has his uh, bum taped up so yes cannot, you noticed that too he cannot defecate yes terry gilliam actually saw he said it was in copenhagen he said he saw it was i believe it was at a restaurant or something that he saw a very nice looking couple with their dog but they had taped up the poor animals anus anus so he couldn't defecate if he absolutely had to no Oh my god. So there's so much weird like he's the more that you want the stuff that goes into his mind and then gets shuffled around and spit back out into his movies. <laughs> you but gotta the, love it. You do. You absolutely yeah. and so this goes back to my thing. Like I I think that like over if I had to choose one movie to show to someone who had never seen a Terry Gilliam movie and they were just like, what, like, show me, like, what is the quintessential Terry Gilliam movie? You would show them Brazil? I would show them Brazil. What? Yes. I would not show someone Brazil as their first Terry Gilliam movie. I think because I find it so unsettling myself. I would show them, I would show them any of the other ones. I, I you think. You wouldn't show them Tideland if you saw no, Tideland. No, no, I haven't seen Tideland, you're right. And I'm sure I wouldn't after what you've told me. Um, but I would show them, definitely show them Time Bandits. Time Bandits, I want to see again. I don't think I've seen Time Bandits since it came out. I, I've i seen bits and pieces since it came out. And there's actually even, there's actually even like a, I won't go into it, but there's stuff in Time Bandits that I want to revisit. Okay. Because I think, I think, I think it's probably like pretty genius. It, I know it's genius. But I would show someone Baron Munchausen or even... A, Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus before I showed them Brazil, I think. Now, I would show them Brazil because then if they went on to watch something like The Fisher King or they watched Tideland or Aspects of Twelve Monkeys, they would get prepared for some of the darker stuff. You wouldn't show show someone Twelve Monkeys before Brazil? You'd show them Brazil before Twelve Monkeys? It would depend. But like I'm just saying, if they're... Hypothetically, if it was just like the quintessential Terry Gilliam movie, you would show them Brazil. I would show them Brazil because okay. Brazil has the visual flair, it has the comedy, it has great performances, it's got amazing sets, amazing costumes. It is, to me, the quintessential Terry Gilliam movie. Like I previously said, though, this is 
far from my favorite Terry yeah. Gilliam movie. Yeah. And I mean, I want to, you know, I want to spend more time in Terry Gilliam's fantasies than his outlook on reality, although I completely, 300%, appreciate and understand his outlook of reality. I have more fun escaping with him in his imagination. Right. Okay. And, but like I said, if I was to choose, like if I was in the mood to watch a Terry Gilliam movie, of the ones that I own, this would probably be the last one that I would throw on. Just just for fun. So there's a juxtaposition with that. Oh, yeah. In terms of showing some of the quintessential Terry Gilliam movie, you would show them Brazil. In terms of your own, what you would sit down and watch on a particular night when you wanted to enjoy yourself and had your druthers, it would not be Brazil. No. Yeah. No. Gotcha. But I'm able... uh, Yeah, because I'm not... I don't want to be kind of that Siskel Niebert thumbs up, thumbs down kind of thing. Okay. I'm very... I'm able to to say, you know, and I think so... And another... It's genius. I mean, I well, said it. I already said it, and I'll say it again. It's genius. And I think it's. A and the second time I saw the movie, I did enjoy it, mostly because of the character of Jill and that actress. Now that also we should probably, according to Terry Gilliam on the commentary, there are five versions of this movie. The version that we watch together is known as the final cut, which is a mix of the European and American releases. Well, that's interesting because it seemed like I hadn't seen those scenes before when I watched it with you. So I don't know if the second, first time I saw it was the American cut in the theaters. Second time, I'm not really sure. I thought it was the same version that we saw, but I don't remember those. I don't remember that. You know when that was released through Criterion? Oh, so it wouldn't. It was in the nineties. Oh, what? Okay, so it wouldn't necessarily be on Netflix or whatever. I iMovie. Which I probably I probably watched it on iMovie. So the, and I thought it said director's cut. Okay. I don't know. See. So you. So the final cut that we're watching has scenes that were only seen in the European version, including that interrogation meat hook scene. That was only in the I, European version. I I think that I think it was significantly cut down. Okay. I think it was a lot. Was probably a lot more rapid fire. We didn't spend as much time with each person talking to him. Okay. In this in this version that we saw, it plays out. Oh yeah. Um, which is why it's interesting because a lot of people have different memories of this movie. Yeah. The first time I saw this movie, <laughs> you're getting into like that Mandela effect. That's not the Brazil I remember. Well, in, in this case, it's actually justified because it could be very confusing to you which version you actually saw of this movie. Right. Because I distinctly remember the first time watching this movie having the happy ending. Now, the happy ending is... I mean, that's in quotation marks, of course. True. It's basically the same ending. You're just seeing something different right. at the very end instead of just him in that huge fucking MK that's Ultra. A cooling, that's, an, that's an actual cooling tower. That huge structure is an actual cooling tower that they filmed it. Oh, my God. That's why, that's why that set is so amazing looking because it's... It's real? It's real. Oh my God! Am I? Am I? Do you do you know where this was filmed? Did they film it in London? I believe so. It was filmed. Most. I mean, it could have been Hollywood, but a cool. All right. Yeah, I. I, I wonder. I, mean, I wonder how much of his films. It's kind of like with Kubrick. How much is in America and how much is actually in England? Well, with, 
Kubrick, it's at one point in his career, he absolutely stopped traveling, so everything was filmed in, in England. In England, okay. Gilliam, well, Gilliam Go back goes, and forth. floats back and forth. Okay. Um, I mean, the fact that he's an LA native makes me like, you know, it's like, wow, which, you know, which city did they build the studios, you know, build the sets in, right, you know, right, that type right. of thing. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, the Mandela effect, it, it, it kind of plays with this movie because I distinctly remember having the happy ending where you see him, the way that the movie opens, flying yep. in his dreams. Yep. And this version and in what the Europeans got, it's quite obvious that he has been lobotomized um, basically by his best friend in the movie. Yeah. I mean, his best friend who's got that fucking baby... That Excuse baby. my language. I've, I've had a beer, listeners, so just, like, bear with me. Um, but, yeah, he comes in with that baby mask. The same baby mask that those little creatures are carrying his love interest in the dream sequence. Oh, my God. And he comes in and does a double take when he sees Sam. He's just yeah. like, oh, no, not my friend. And not does- Sam. Not Sam. I got to do this to Sam. Yeah, and he's it, pissed. He tells yeah. Sam, he's just like, why would you have to fuck up like this? Yeah, he blames Sam. Yeah. He's like, why yeah. are you doing this to me? Yeah, right, and right. Why does, are you doing this to me? Yeah. Exactly. He does, a, he, but he does some great physical acting where he's just like, you could see the way that he's got this whole tray of tools. And he's shaking. Torture. Yeah, he's yeah. shaking. He's just dropping things. Yeah. Like he doesn't know what to pick up. He's he's brilliant. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. And that that actor, that Monty Python actor, what's his name again? Michael Palin. Michael Palin. He's terrific. That scene in his office where, where Sam comes to visit him and he's got his little girl in the office too and he's got blood all over his, like, his butcher's coat or whatever. And he's... I'm pretty sure this this is the case. He's giving himself electroshock therapy after probably a kill. It's like it's almost like he's using like massage vibrators right. on his you know on his temples, he but he's giving himself his, ECT yeah. before he you know. So he kind and of and you like, know you know what that does. It creates right, yeah right. It creates amnesia. Yeah yeah. But it's very interesting. That was the only scene that was reshot. Really? Originally, that scene was shot pretty much the same way, minus the daughter being there. Oh, and they had to put in the daughter. Who was actually played by Terry Gilliam's actual daughter. Well, she does a good job. She does. Um, But but yeah, that just makes it, you know, another layer of disturbing. So I mean, that's, you know, it reminds me of... It's even more disturbing than this, but it reminds me of in Sophie's Choice when she's in the concentration camp and right, you know, right in one of in one of the buildings is actually like a family living with their children. And, you know, it's like it's all very like warm and cozy. (laughs) I mean, I want to say there's a fireplace, but, you know, so he said feels that way. So they filmed the scene and and Gilliam just said there's something missing. He goes. We we need you know what we need we need to have one of the daughters in there, to just add this weird subversive kind yeah. of. Yep, and it worked. It worked totally. And worked. It's, it, it's it was ve- it's a very funny story because he said you know his daughter I think was like six at the time. Okay. So, they shot all day and it, you know initially she was having fun because she's just playing with toys on the floor. By the end of filming, the 
that she had she had enough. Oh yeah, she, I'm done, Daddy. She said she, she refused to come back the next day, <laughs> and she had the pre- she had the presence of mind. She, I don't know how this. Clearly, Gilliam's daughter. She goes. I know what I'll do. If I cut my hair, there's no way Daddy could put me back in the movie. So she cut her hair in an attempt to escape a second day of filming. They they, slap a wig on her. Yeah, so they got a wig on her. They did? Yeah, they finally got her back. They finally got her back for the scene, and then she refused... Which, admittedly, is I don't a... blame her. Well, but no. Did she have any idea what was going? It's like no. Bjork and Dancer in the Dark when she disappeared for five days after the murder scene. But no, but she's six years old. She doesn't know what this is. Daddy's, okay, this is Dad's work. Okay. But she didn't want to say that. Um, that line. That change the suit or I'll cut your willy off. No, no, no. no. Oh, Ch- put on the suit. I won't look at your willy. Oh, that's what she actually says. Yeah, that's what she actually says. Oh, my fucking God. Okay. (laughs) So they finally got her to do it by clearing the set. Gilliam did the camera. His wife did the boom mic. And they finally got her to say the line. (laughs) Which is a very, it's a very funny line. It's a very, this, this No, it's not nothing. Yes. Uh, It is, but it isn't. It is, but it isn't. Because this movie also makes the line, how about some necrophilia funny? Right, right. And that's coming from... Our breath of fresh air. Yeah. Jill, who is played by Weiss. Kim Grace. Kim Grace. Kim Grace. Grace. Grace? Kim Grace. Did you happen to IMDb her? I didn't. I wonder if I... Oh, I don't have my laptop with me. So, I read somewhere that Gilliam was upset with her performance. <laughs> which which I which cracks me up. All but, right, hearing that. But, because she's, you know, the second time I watched it, she was the one that I really focused okay. on. Okay. But I have no... This, this seems to be one of those, like, Wikipedia things that yeah. I think someone kind of just wrote. Yeah, don't... Because, don't, because yeah. Li- I listened... I watched the entire movie today with his commentary, okay. and he did not say one thing about her performance and so what did wikipedia say yeah so what is what, no, what did it say just that he was on he didn't like so she, he he recut and re-edited some of the scenes based on her performance that's that's what they said but this movie has been recut and re-edited so many I know, times i know i mean but, i think she's terrific no and, everything she does and he's after after Watching many of his movies and watching several of his movies with his commentaries, there's one thing that he does not do is hold back. He does not want to hold his tongue. He, on the Brazil commentary, he says, fuck you to, to Gene Siskel. On the Brothers Grimm commentary, <laughs> he talks about what a nightmare it was working for the Weinsteins. So if he actually had a problem with her, and he he does make critiques of his own movie in this commentary about like oh i wouldn't have done it this way i wouldn't have shot it this way i wouldn't edit this way he did not say one thing about her her he leaves her alone yeah okay so i i find that very hard to believe i think that's one of those wikipedia things wikipedia isn't isn't terribly reliable you do know that yeah i mean anyone can go in and change it right so uh if you put that on wikipedia shame on you because uh, she's lovely She's lovely. Her performance is great. He oh, talks yeah. About, oh, like, yeah. He talks about it like... I mean, she's the humanity. In essence, she's the humanity 
that he's chasing yes. throughout the whole movie in a very inhumane world. Right. One that does not care about the human being no. or the individual. No. And here she is, this fierce individual who will simply, who, who is simply too free of a spirit to play the game. To conform. Of, and to conform. Fall in yeah. line, become a cog in the machine. Yeah. Which I think leads up perfectly, Andrew. It's time once again that we consult Let's the, do it. the Ministry of Information. Let's consult the Ministry EP7 of Information. 3916. Yeah. Be safe. Be suspicious. This whole, you know, oh my God. Oh, oh. And I, you know, and I remember seeing this after 9-11 all over New York. Um, you know, if you, if you, something to the effect of if you suspect it, report it. Something, is that down there too? There's one of them. Don't suspect a friend, report him. All right, so we've got that on this list as well. Be safe, be suspicious. Now, it's funny, my roommate, my roommate said to me as I was leaving <clears throat> the house the other day, "Be stay safe. Oh, and I got so pissed off. I was just, stop, stop. I'm so tired of hearing that. You know, and she tried to backpedal. She was like, I mean, don't get hit by a car or anything. I was, I was like, no, 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 no. Before COVID, nobody said stay safe. Nobody used those two words together. I was like, that's a COVID expression terminology. Anyway, so yeah. So here we have be, sus be safe and be suspicious. Go ahead and read the next one. Liberty, equality, fraternity, information. <laughs> Let's lump them all together. Eternal, Let's just lump it all together. Eternal vigilance is the price of prosperity. Regret nothing. Report everything. Oh my heavens! Let me give it, give it back. You're reading, you're reading them all. You're at loose talk. Is loose talk? Oh, and I remember seeing that in the movie. Yeah. Loose in a poster in the office. Loose talk is noose. Talk like a noose around your neck. Yep. Be a live patriot, not a dead traitor. That, I mean, this this is... They call... Okay, it's called... I think I'm saying this correctly. Hegelian dialect? Hegelian dialect. I think it's H-E-G-E-L-I-N. But it's taking the vocabulary that we all know and twisting around the definitions of the words. I know what you're talking, yeah, mm -hmm. and 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 making them mean something different mm -hmm. than than what they even being even being a liberal nowadays means something different than what it used to mean. Um, a lot of a lot of words, a lot of labels like this have changed sure. over over time, and they've been manipulated. I don't want to say that it, none of this is organic or spontaneous. It's been manipulated. Well, think about this: before the Michael Jackson song, "Bad" was. Oh, right. You didn't want to be bad. <laughs> After Michael Jackson? I'm bad. Everybody wanted to be bad. <laughs> Being bad used to be a bad thing. That's uh, Oh, you, you bad. Now yeah. it's, yeah. Now, so it's weird that, like, how our culture, like... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It might have been, it might have come up through street slang being bad, but even street slang is manipulated in my opinion. I remember walking across the Williamsburg Bridge in New York to go to places and seeing graffiti and even noticing how certain terminology had been uh, used for different means. Sure. Even, with, even within that graffiti. Yeah? Yeah. No, it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, you got the Michael Jackson thing, you have um, different words having different meanings in different languages. 
I this is completely off topic of Brazil, but it relates to a director. His name is Nimrod Antal, and he's Portuguese. What? Nimrod is his first name. Whose? Nimrod Antal. Who's that? He's a director. Nimrod Antal is the name of movie director. Yes. His name is Nimrod. That's yes. like that's like Satan. That's like Lucifer. Not in Portuguese. What does it mean? It means it means like the exact opposite of what we think a Nimrod is. Right. Well, when we say Nimrod, it means a, like a, a doofus, like right. a uh, yeah, yeah, no, a moron. Like, yeah, it's not in Portuguese. What do you know? What the definition is in Portuguese? Let's see if we can. All right. So we're back again. So, yes, Nimrod. This this trans has, yeah this translation reads as in in Hebrew, means rebel, and due to the biblical character, this name was adopted as an English language vocabulary word meaning hunter. Somewhere along the lines, this got conflated into meaning someone with a deficiency of intelligence. Yeah, like basically. So this is this is a good case in point right here of what we're talking about in terms of Hegelian dialect, if I'm saying that correctly. But yeah, just the word initially, I mean, one of the weirdest things, I, I think I remember um, the history of the word geek. Do you know what the history of the word geek goes no, back to? No, A geek was a carnival performer that used to bite the heads off of chickens. Oh, man. That's what a geek was. Now oh, we call man. it... So, which is weird, because now we refer to geeks as kind of nerds or yeah. that kind of thing. Uh-huh. The last thing you, you think of, of, I don't see many nerds butting the heads off of chickens. And to think about how many times you use the word geek and not knowing that that's its origin. Right. Think about that. Well, a lot of people, I, I think... Oh, it just speaks to the ignorance of some people. Well, but I mean, so, why would you? Why? I mean, if you were raised... If you were raised, you know, hearing geek as just someone who's, you know, um, uh, a goober, there's another word. I wonder what that origin of those... It's chocolate covered peanuts. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I mean, you know, you know, you wouldn't really take the time to research, especially pre-internet. Like, you know, what is the, what is the, what are the origins of the definition of the word Greek? You know, geek, sorry. Sure. Um, So let's get back to Brazil. Now... I think it's interesting that we see this ministry of information that's just endlessly cogs in the machine, people pushing papers, getting papers signed. Stamping papers, pushing buttons, whatnot, yeah. Now, and it's funny that it's... It's funny that it's done in the steampunk fashion where it is literally paperwork... Uh, instead of digital. Right. Yeah. But going back to what we were just talking about, I, I, I met and noted this. It's, it's interesting that either this ministry of information is either extremely malicious or they're extremely ignorant. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe where do you draw the line? Or it might be yeah. a mixture of both. uh-huh, like willful ignorance and willful willful ignorance of its sinister um, 
origins. Once again, I'm using that word. So we have, like, the higher-ups that I think might be a little bit more malicious, but the people on the the grunts, the ground floor people are very ignorant. I mean, look at um, his boss. Yeah, his boss who's scared. His boss is scared of terrified of not doing the right thing. But I think he makes a very interesting comment. He goes, he has one line. He just goes, "What a pathetic creature I am." <laughs> Which is just, but I mean, you know, perfect. doesn't he say that? Doesn't he say that after after Sam has forged his signature and he's right. watched, and that comes back later to bite him in the ass? Yeah. And I knew it. I saw the I saw the look on his face. I was like, he's gonna he's gonna He's going to nail him with that. So he probably taught him how to forge his name, and now he's going to nail him for that. Yeah, he, like, fakes an injury, and, mm-hmm. like, he has... Yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't sign right my, now. My hand is all limp. And right, he says that, he says... I think I broke a bone. He says that, he says, I seem to be limp in the wrist right yeah. now. He does say that, which itself is, has connotations. What so, do you mean by that? It's the whole world we're, like, introduced to... It's very interesting because it's, um, there's really no, like I said, there's no explanation given to how the world got this way, yeah. where we have this ministry of information that has information in the title, but the people that work there seem to be the most uninformed, uninformed yes, <laughs> uninformed people in the world. Right. They're just doing whatever they're told to do. They're not, they don't have, they're, there's no cognitive thinking. There's no critical thinking on no, their part. No individual thinking on their part just, whatsoever. You, it, yeah. Following orders. Yeah. Um, very bureaucratic, very Nazi-ish, just kind of following orders, kind of passing the buck. If they, if I get the orders from the higher up, I got to do what I'm told. We, you know, you know, the Nazis used IBM from what I understand. IBM was part of their um, system. At that time, before IBM became computerized, I think they used it for their time clocks, whatnot, maybe their paperwork. I'm not quite sure. Mm -hmm. But that's what I've heard, and that's... Don't quote me on it. It's worth researching on your own, people. Or just research Nazi IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's interesting, I think, that we enter a world where we're kind of on... There's no explanation, and we enter on a need-to-know basis. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you suspend your disbelief and take what take the world that's been plopped in front of plopped you. Plopped in front of you. Uh-huh. And, and there's it's definitely produced enough where you, it's a complete world. It is. Yeah. The, and you don't have to fill in any blanks with your own imagination. No, and through the lead character we get to learn more as he as he gets as he accepts his promotion and rises up the ranks and finds out what's what goes on right with all this now all of a sudden he's upstairs i think on maybe the 40 something floor um and his boss is 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 followed by a um a, a group or a gang or a posse of people of employees who are yes men Yes, men, thank you, who are, um, you know, following his every whim and executing right. his every statement. He's just making it he's happen, just, making, it, making it manifest. He will look at a, a, a piece of paper for a millisecond, immediately tell you yes or no. Right. Um, and that, per, that piece of paper is probably someone, someone someone's, someone's processing life. paper. Right. Yeah. And he introduces 
he goes, your very own cubicle with your very own number. And wow. And gone. It's all about, I mean. Numbers. Having worked numbers at, are a big deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Numbers mm-hmm. are. You're basically reduced to a number mm-hmm. here. Um, mm-hmm. Your name is not important. Mm-mm. Um, and I and I do I do think numbers as well as symbols play a huge, huge part in the world that we live in, more than we know. Right. They even they even say they even say that the numerical aspect of the Bible um, has its own system and frequencies. Well, we had people that are those. obsessed with astrology. Yeah, and sure. You're, you're... But numerology in particular, like it starts sure. cropping up, and we've seen it. Uh, when we watched Brick, there was a lot of number play going on, especially right. with the times on the clock, but also in room numbers, I think. Yeah, you've got that going on in Brazil. I'm not a numerologist, and no. I don't, and I don't really aspire to be one, so I can't, I can't really decode all of this. No, but I, I, there's something going on. That's my point. Is there's something going on with the numbers? I, not so much. Yeah, I'm not so much concerned about what exactly is going on. Just the fact that you're basically reduced to a number sure that too absolutely um that that um yeah you don't have harkens back to the kubrick uh clockwork orange where alex is stripped of his name when he goes to jail okay and he needs to memorize his number yeah because no one's going to refer to him as alex anymore yeah you're only referred to as your number yeah or in les miserables where uh jean valjean is 24601 uh that's javert who Basically chases him through the whole plot. Is knows knows him as that number. As that number. Yeah. So he basically becomes a number in a very very small office, mm-hmm. and it's a very half interesting... an office. I think it's half an. It looks like an office that's been split in half, with a hole cut in the wall, so that they can share the same desk. Yes. <laughs> and and um, it becomes a tug of war. Who gets more of the desk? If you've ever worked in an office, which I have, it's yeah. Office politics are alive and well. <laughs> you know you made it when you got your own office or a bigger office or an office with a window or all that kind of stuff. If you've never lived it, let me let me tell you right now, it's all true. It's all all too true. And he's got nothing mm-hmm. in this office. Mm-hmm. He's an executive now. His mother has bought him a nice gift for executives. And uh, so he's an executive, still, still a pawn in the chess game, still a cog in the machine with a half an office. Okay, so it's interesting, and not his own computer. So he doesn't have a computer in his office. It's very intentional that we never meet, like, um, or actually, not only do we not meet, no one is ever referred to as the minister. Uh huh. Of the ministry uh-huh. of information, we only have the vice minister. Is that the is that the guy in who's the wheelchair? Got, yes. Uh, why is he in a wheelchair? You might ask. Why FDR is why he's in a wheelchair. Oh, really? That's yes. a that's a direct uh, reference to FDR, huh? Yes, it is. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? You know, FDR was the one who put the pyramid with the eye on the top of it on the dollar bill, which mm-hmm. is Masonic. Yeah. Yeah. So we uh. got we, we, we never meet the minister. It's only the vice minister, and uh, it's implied that there's no one uh, above him. But there I mean, probably is. But there probably is. But we we never know exactly who. Yeah. Um. I think that's very that's 
very intentional. Yeah. That's part of the ambiguity. Yeah. Where you can kind of put in your own yeah. puppet master. Mm-hmm. Because for a vice minister, mm-hmm. this guy's not very smart. He's not. <laughs> no, he's, he's not. not. He's definitely playing by the game as well. He's not making... It does. It doesn't. It doesn't really look like he's making decisions by his own accord. No. No. So he's still he's still answering to somebody. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And he, if he were making decisions by his own accord, he might choose to sh- to save Sam's life in the right. end. But instead, he's there witnessing the final act of the lobotomy. Remember? It's a, yeah, oh yeah. He's yeah. there. Not and only he says, is he there, and, but and he says think, to Jack, "I think he's not. I don't think he's with us anymore." We get some very... So, again, this is one of our couple Christmas episodes. So, this does take place during Christmas. And there's a very pivotal scene. It's also quite creepy when he's dressed up like Santa Claus visiting Sam in the cell. Oh, right. Oh, right. And he's talking about how much easier it would be. He goes, you're just making this more difficult for yourself. You're making it more difficult for me. You're costing costing yourself all this money. Yes. It's so creepy. I know. To put him in a Santa suit. I know. Well, and then you've got... And then then he's like, like, I'm off to see the orphans or something. Right. (laughs) Right. Right, and then you've got the um, the police commissioner like training his cops how to sing. What is it? Oh, holy night! It's yeah, some I something so. like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean that that creeped me out. I was just like, ah, really. But that's that. It's all very intentional on the part of Gilliam, who said that he grew up loving Christmas, but then as he got older, he just saw all the, the, the well consum- the consumerism is a big part of the movie definitely oh, yeah yeah but there are there are very do dub- i just had a conversation about this with my friend actually before coming here there are very dubious uh origins to christmas as well oh yeah so i mean this is you know this is something else it's just like you know learning that i guess i can say it on this pod can i say that Sam? oh yeah of course i'm just gonna say i i hope there are no children listen children shouldn't be listening to us that being said, Santa Claus isn't real, so... <laughs> but that's only the beginning. Like, you well, know, once you find that out, there's other stuff about Christmas that's like, really? Oh, no, really? Yeah. Really? Okay. I mean, if a child is old enough to have watched Brazil and yeah. gone out of their way to find a podcast talking about Brazil... Yeah, I'm not going to burst still anyone's believe, bubble. If you still believe in Santa Claus, <laughs> yeah. uh, we'd you... love to have you on the show. Yeah, You could say a lot. You could, you could <laughs> contribute quite a bit. Yes. But I, I remember... You know what? I remember when my mother told me that there wasn't a Santa Claus, and I didn't know. I still thought there was. Right. And she was kind of pissed that I didn't figure it out on my own <laughs> i remember i felt so bad for i went i went to parochial school for the first couple uh first half of my life before going to public schools uh, so it was a very small class there was less than 30 kids okay and i re- distinctly remember the last i won't mention her name the last girl in our class to discover that santa claus wasn't real everybody else knew and she still believed, and I, I, I don't remember how it came out, but it like shattered her. Oh, that's oh, that poor. It didn't come. It didn't come from her parents. Oh, it came from her, the it, rest of her class. It came from like the rest Everybody. of the class talking about. Um, <laughs> and I'm not sure exactly how it came about. It probably came about because we were talking about. 
we did Secret Santa because it was such a small class. Yeah. So we did Secret Santa yeah. within our class. It was probably something like that. But I remember, I remember the one girl who was still a believer get just getting shattered. Um, oh dear, again, that dear, really dear, has nothing dear, dear. to no, do. No, with... no, it does. It does. It does. I think it does. I think that kind of plays into Brazil being set during Christmas time. It's being set during a time of jovial goodness or, you know, proposed jovial goodness and innocence and Christ. It's probably not when Christ was actually born. So, I mean, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a real purity. There's supposed to be a real purity about Christmas and about enjoying Christmas. A very idealized Sure. Kind of time. Sure. Right. Sure. We kind of and, put aside all our... Mm-hmm. But... And instead, we have it here in the middle of this nightmare. And of course, it's 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 gotten to me this Christmas how we're trying to plow through and just have Christmas. And for me, it's it's almost like, why are we even bothering anymore? I am going through that right now. So that is, you know... So, I mean, I feel for that girl, and I think it's relevant, your story. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it wasn't just <laughs> random yeah. throw. Yeah. Um, oh, another very interesting thing that I wanted to talk about. So the the movie opens and we meet Sam in his dream. We immediately get a barrage of what Terry Gilliam says is useless information that the TV spews out. And oh sure. That, we get, well, right. Well, we see right. We see one of we see the television sets in the store window get blown up terrorist act and then we see the one surviving television feeding us news news commentary right. and that's very intentional of gilliam just saying that tv just like in, has invaded everyone's lives it's and what we spe- live by yeah and how they whatever they put onto the television is reality yes so that's a ve- it's a very symbolic opening yeah and to- you see that in that last TV is truly engulfed in flames. It's I mean, we see the screen and we, and we ha- see the news commentary, but there's flames but, but everywhere. The, but, but the guy is talking about, he's talking about the terrorists and saying right. that he, these people don't know how to play the game. Right. He's referring to right. people's lives in this society as a game. Right. You right. don't play by the game. You you're not happy that somebody else wins. Right, right. Reducing it to like a board game. But right. Play, let me let me let me read another one of these lines from the uh, Ministry of Information. Please be alert. Some terrorists look normal. Uh, and I just wanna I wanna reference Jill when Jill is talking to Sam, and she's saying, "Come on, Sam. Have you ever met a terrorist?" <laughs> and a very I think a very telling line is in the movie is that they're at lunch there's a terrorist attack yeah and, and they just keep goes, on going his mom goes Sam when are you going to do something about these terrorists and he goes I'm on my lunch hour <laughs> it's not my problem but I mean here here we bring up the concept of false flags and that governments actually can legally stage a false flag as a terrorist attack that will sway the public opinion in their favor. So there, I've put that out there. And that is researchable. 
I think Bush himself, Bush W., said that it's actually legal. It's been legalized to create false flags. So, anything to keep the public in fear. And that's kind of what, you know, we're... We never find out exactly no. who is behind these terrorist attacks. No, but it's it's the government, pretty much in this context and it's, in the movie, and you can you can apply that to a broader brushstroke as well. No, I, I yeah. would agree, I would agree that it, it is um, it's to instill fear in its people and to instill confidence in the Ministry of Information. Yeah, well, the, and to instill confidence in in uh, being complicit. And conforming right. and following orders, that that's where you get your confidence from. Because not through individuality. Sam thinks that um, Jill is a terrorist. Oh, right. Well, he, he because of that package she because gets. Because of the package. Yeah. He, that 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 it's a bomb. He's convinced. Yeah. That, like he wrestles with it over her, and then we get an explosion in the building. And he still thinks it's her. He blames her. He says, directly. "How would you do this?" Yeah. And then he finds the package that she had. It was just a, it was just a Christmas present. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, how much does he not know, considering his position? Serious. No. The, yeah. ministry, the ministry of information is not full of information. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> and I think he says to her at one point when she says, "Have you ever met a terrorist?" He's like, "Well, I'm not sure. It's my first day on the job," and she just laughs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> To, because to to the ministry, someone like Tuttle is a terrorist. When all he's De Niro's doing, Tuttle, yes. Yeah, when all his act of terrorism is that he's um he's got so fed up with central services because central services is a mess, and central services basically this world. It's all about ducks. There's ducks everywhere. Yeah. In every apartment, either they're hidden Ugly. in the walls. Well, and like so Sam's, what, if, what kind of air are they feeding through these ducks? It makes you wonder, you know, what's up with that even. It's very questionable because sure. at one point we see a guy go up to like a free air, like a, a healthy air machine. <laughs> where he's, so it's very odd that like the... That these ducks are supposed to maintain your either your heat or your air conditioning. If you're uh, not, if you're not so well off, the ducks are just going through your apartment. If you're someone like Sam, like you notice his apartment, all the his mom's well off, and she's got ducks like hanging from the ceilings everywhere. She's got a very nice place. So, but that's true. But in his apartment, it doesn't become a mess until one of the ducks breaks. And right. And it all comes through the... Right. And the way that he wanted... He wanted the ducks to be kind of symbolic of umbilical cords. Oh, sure. Sure. How we're all kind of attached. Yeah. Like in Donnie Darko, that vision he has of that weird... Or the Matrix. Umbilical cord. Sure. Right, yeah. right. Incidentally, I watched that... Um, I was kind of force watched that uh, that Halston movie recently, more like a miniseries. I didn't really want to watch like all those hours of Halston, but I I did learn that in Studio Fifty Four, um, they had like poppers going through those vents uh, sometimes. You know that would get everybody high on the dance floor. So, so I mean, you can do a lot with you know with ducts and air vents. Oh yeah, like with air. 
that people breathe. So, <laughs> so he's labeled as a terrorist by the Ministry of Information. But what he does is he infiltrates like gen people like genuinely needing help with yeah. central services, and he knows that central services won't help. Won't help. He's gonna will take forever to help. Yeah. So he's kind of just like a renegade guy yeah. going around doing good deeds. Yeah, he's gone rogue. It's awesome. It's it is great. But yeah, he's he's definitely. He's definitely labeled a terrorist now oh, because yeah, of that. Yeah, sure. Because he's he's um, interfering. Uh huh. He's interfering with mm -hmm. the way that things. Obstructionist. Well, I I th actually I think that it is. It's mentioned that he used to work for Central Services. Yes, he did. Uh huh. And he got fed up with the paperwork. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I get it because this movie is all about the paperwork. And I. <laughs> I guess there's so many jobs that are like the, all about the paperwork now. And oh, yeah. I talk to people, I talk to teachers, I've talked to people in the, um, you know, in the medical and mental health industries, and they talk about how it gets worse every year. As someone that had worked in the mental health field, that was the worst part of my job. And you would think with computers, there wouldn't be paperwork. Right. No. I had to do treatment plans on the computer, treatment plans in paper for mm. the paper file. Mm -mm. It's just paperwork, mm -mm. and it's paperwork mm -mm. that it's only really necessary if something terrible happens and we have to go back in history and try to pinpoint what exactly went wrong with this individual, mm. or... If you get an audit and they just randomly say, we want to look at that file. Mm. So all the paperwork's got to be in order. Mm. So paperwork's a bitch. Mm. And I mm. guess it's, is it irony that he is killed? Well, he's only killed in a dream, but he's killed by paperwork. Robert De Niro's character. Is he, does he, I mean, I'm not even, I'm not even going to use the word killed. Does he disappear in the dream finale sequence? Yeah. When he's being saved? Yes. Um, and he is. He disappears into paperwork he blows away it's so that's very unsettling when you think of it that way and i didn't really put that together no he and then basically with all this paperwork it's like it's snowing at christmas time you see all the papers blown up into the air and then it's drifting down like snowflakes and um yeah there's just a lot to unpack in this movie yeah and um yeah yeah how are we doing for time we got about uh Another 15 minutes to go, I would say. Before what? I don't know. <laughs> How long have we been talking? About an hour and a half. That's good. Yeah. Uh, let's see. That's good for us. Let's I mean. see. I know. We, I mean, we, we've been pushing two hours lately. Let's see. What else did I want to say about this? Well, while we're on, let's talk a little bit about Robert De Niro's performance. Um, yeah. First of all, to have a name like Robert De Niro in your movie, and his face is pretty much obstructed yeah. until the very end, mm -hmm. to the point where one of Gilliam's friends saw the movie twice, and then Gilliam asked him what he thought about it, and he said, oh, no, I really, really liked it. He goes, what do you think about De Niro? And he goes... De Niro was in it? Like, yeah. That was his response. <laughs> you mean Robert De Niro? <laughs> yeah, he was in the movie. He was? Yeah. He's got a mustache. Yeah. Most of the time he's wearing a ski mask because, you know, you could see his face, but then he's got goggles on, he's got the glasses on. It's not until the last scene where you, it's an unobstructed uh, shot of his face. And 
to have someone like De Niro in your movie, I, I'm sure that Universal loved that. Oh, sure. They were just, you know, they, they were yeah. absolutely. Eat it, eat it up like ice cream. And then the, he's kind Barely in the movie when you really think about like he's got like probably half a dozen scenes and they're ri- like especially the last scene is just like a re- it's like a it turns into like a cool action movie yeah um, da, 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 it's saved. got the big triumphant yep. music yep soldiers he's he's accompanied by an army basically yeah a small army who's helping Sam who like um. What do you call it? Rappel down the mm-hmm. cooling tower mm-hmm. to save him. Mm-hmm. And then they got a big shootout mm-hmm. and then they blow up the ministry. Yeah. Of and you're like, yes, yes, yes. And it's all a dream. It's all a dream. And so I want, when did the dream start? When do you, when the do you dream, think? I think the dream starts right when they start coming down the tower. Um, you think they actually came down the tower? No, 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 no. Oh, I oh. think that's the dream. Oh, yeah. I think that's. I think that's when he's been lobotomized, basically. You know? So it's interesting, though. So this guy—he—he's our hero. He's our protagonist. But his dream starts with his best friend getting shot in the head. Granted, his best friend was torturing him, but the dream starts with his. Yeah. Like yeah. Prop only the only shot of. Gore and blood, I think, in this movie. Yeah. We have a lot of explosions. Well, and and, it, and it's one of those scenes that I remember in Scream 2, someone gets knifed in the head and is still alive for a while. Don't you immediately just die when you get, like, shot in the head? It depends. So, really? Yeah. Okay, well, because he's still alive. Jack is still alive and suffering for a little bit before yeah because the finally... mask falls off and mm-hmm. he like turns to the camera and you get like the this, hole in the head you yep. got a hole in the head and it's gushing blood mm-hmm. but it turns out that this was all a, a dream but still it's a it's, he's he's it, not he isn't dead instantly from that no yeah. um it's it's interesting to me that this movie is rated r uh instead of pg-13 yeah rated r rated r rated r rated r Excuse me. There is nudity, isn't there? Don't you see Jill naked? You see her, the back of her. You don't. No, you see, you see her breasts, don't you? You can see. You can, I think you. you I think I so. Can, I know that I've seen breasts in a PG thirteen and PG movies. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, just, I mean, R is you know, it's definitely it is going to limit your viewership. It is, but then again, it's not the kind of movie that's going to appeal to kids. No, no, it's not. I mean, it should be PG thirteen at least. Yeah, I mean, if you, I wonder if it was rated R because prior to this we had Time Bandits, Jabberwocky, Monty Python, PG movies. Well, the meaning of life was rated R. I remember. Okay. You know. Um, so they go into that territory. I don't th- Even I'm Monty not Python sure does. Di- I'm not sure if he directed The Meaning of Life. So. No, Terry Gilliam, I don't think he did, but that no. is Monty Python. Yeah, but I'm just saying, yeah. so he co-directed uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Then he did Time Bandits and Jabberwocky, both of which are PG. Okay, gotcha. Kind of, it, 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 kind of nice movies for uh, like dads that are a fan of Monty Python to bring their kids to. Yeah, which is, which is basically what happened with Meaning of Life. With me, yeah. Yeah. It was my friend's dad bringing my friend and my eye to it. 
But yeah, I, I could see the, not wanting to kind of be like, you know, if you're expecting Time Bandits or Jabberwocky, you're not going to get that with Brazil. No. No. No, this is adult material. It is. It's with adult themes. Uh, stuff that you can't really grasp until you've been an adult out in the world for a while. Right. Mm-hmm. I just... Is there a suspect in your family? Of course there is. Contact the Ministry of Information... Ring one zero 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 zero. Easy enough to remember. So, it's it's interesting that um. So I uh, going back to the Q and A that I saw, the guy was asking Terry Gilliam about, like, did you did when you were growing up, did you like sci-fi movies? He said no. Because he said at the time, the kind of sci-fi movies he was getting, you know, you got to think that he grew up in the... Fifties, sixties, so like he was getting kind of like the goofy sci-fi sure. movies yeah. of giant ants or yeah. weird creatures coming down and yeah. like... So, but he did take um, influence from George Lucas in this movie. He did. The, they're actually referred to, I mean, I don't think they're referred to in the movie as stormtroopers, but those, that, those people that come in to take out Tuttle. They look like stormtroopers. They do look like Mm -hmm. stormtroopers. I thought the same thing. That's very much intentional. It was very much the way he wanted to base it, kind of like that look on. Okay. And, you know, you've got stormtroopers coming in and then... The methods of interrogation and it's all he kind of he just he took it from like real things that he heard about ways that you know yeah the governments would interrogate quote unquote yeah people yeah so um another thing that I like about Terry Gilliam is that he referred to this movie as a cinematic mugging. Oh well, that yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel I felt mugged. Right. <laughs> he used another word that starts with R, but then he corrected himself and goes, "No, let's go with cinematic mugging." But he basically because oh sure, well I, f- I almost feel that too. <laughs> because not really, not really. More uh, of a mugging. Yeah, it's more of a uh-huh. mugging because I mean you kind of. You're kind of taken all over the place in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, literally. It's very, very funny at times. Mm-hmm. It's very, very disturbing at times. Mm-hmm. It's very dark. It's very pessimistic. Mm-hmm. There's some very, just, there's something going on in every frame of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, that's something that's a, a very the, trademark of him. Right. And to, to choreograph everything, especially the scenes in the Ministry of the mm-hmm. Information, mm-hmm. to see all these people going down corridors, following the guy, or when he was in his previous job, to have all these people just walking with papers, hand like mm-hmm. like he said that it took like for, like they had to work with like like a like a dance choreographer Mm -hmm. to kind of, because it was kind of a dance Mm -hmm. in order for these people, because they're, they're moving down a very small Mm -hmm. hallway. It's a little crowd of, it's a little crowd by itself. Right. Zooming around. And then you have 
like, and yeah, they're going in and out in the yeah. background, and then you have in the foreground, you have uh, Jonathan Price like looking around the corner, yeah. going like, yeah. "Where are they coming from?" It, it's something you would see in something animated, but to see live actors actually working that out—that's right. that's pretty impressive. He also he also made he says that a lot of my movies feel like they want to become a musical. At some point. Oh, I totally see that. I totally they, see that. But they never do. Right. I totally see that. And there is something about there is something about that tension where it's about to move over into that genre, but it doesn't. Yeah. There is something I, I get, with that. Like, I, yeah. It wouldn't surprise me. Like. Yeah. But instead, you're kept in this, you yeah. know, almost there, almost there, almost about to burst into song, about, about to burst into dance, almost, but no. No, no, right, no, 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 no. Right. We're not going to cross that line. We're going to stay on this side. Right. <laughs> so, but but would that be... would be the release. Yeah. That's the thing. When Baz Luhrmann made Moulin Rouge, he set up the scenes so where it's like they almost couldn't go any further until you sang a song, until someone started singing. Right. And that would be the release. So, But here, you don't have that release. And that's but, intentional. But we do have, we do have moments of levity. We do have... We even have toilet humor in this movie. Sure, do we? Yeah. When tu- when uh, Harry, you got the two guys from Central Services. Oh, 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 that scene. Go ahead. Explain. So, <laughs> explain so to the listener. Central Services is basically taking over Sam's apartment because um, they found a uh, they found that Tuttle had repaired his his duct system. So that they they said that now the Ministry of Information has to uh, take over the apartment to find out what else has been contaminated. Well, they, and they basically it's it's basically an excuse to trash his apartment, though. Yeah, and they're ripping out all the wires and all the ducts. And Gilliam very purposefully wanted it to look like actual your guts and organs being ripped out of your body. Yeah. That's kind of like what that it is looks what, like. That is what it looks like. It looks like, you know, your intestines. Yeah, someone's ripping your intestines yep. out and, you know, stretching them out and just And like, le- leaving them to hang yeah, out the open. Yeah, just hang everywhere. Mm-hmm. So as retaliation for Central Services taking over, you know, Robert De Niro's character, Harry Tuttle, he hooks. They're in these big like hazmat suits, mm-hmm. and he hooks. He disengages the oxygen going into their suits and hooks it up to the sewer line, and basically fills their suits with raw sewage. Do they? Do they? They don't drown in that because it explodes. It explodes. So we're we assume that they have survived this, right? Alive, yeah, but they've just they've been filled up with sh- with shit basically. Yeah, okay. Well, it's kind okay. of a comment that like you know all these cent- all the people that work at Central Service are full of shit. Are full of shit anyway. <laughs> so you might. So as well, why not just why make not it, actually make it fill, real? Yeah, yeah. Why not actually fill them full of shit? <laughs> it's like it's like it's fun because it's the like the the rebel the common man getting back at like the yes. higher ups of being like. Yeah, all right. Yeah. You, you, you've been able to push me around with your paperwork and all this nonsense for now. This is what this is my retaliation. This mm-hmm. is my revenge. Mm-hmm. And it is sweet. Mm-hmm. But it smells like shit mm-hmm. because it's actually shit. <laughs> <laughs> so there, so we do have release in this movie. There is it's it's very and there's some very weird 
like psychological stuff going on here, and I'll I'll bring up two in instances. So, in his dream, Sam at one point battles a giant samurai. When he finally defeats the samurai, he unmasks him to reveal his own face. It's kind of like, I'm my own worst enemy. I'm the one that's been standing... In my way. In my own way, you know, to pursue a relationship, to pursue a different job, maybe. I'm the one standing in my own way. So we had that going on. He works for the Beast... He does work for the beast right. in a way. So yeah. I mean, that could be the one of the metaphors implied. And we meet. And initially, he's very apathetic. He doesn't really care. He goes to he goes to work. He does his job, and like he's not happy, but he, he's content. I guess you could say. He talks to his mom, and she's like, "Don't you have any dreams? Any hopes? Any ambitions?" And he goes, "No, not even dreams." It's not until he sees Jill. Really? Yes. I mean, all of a sudden, something sparks inside of him. Because the I, I get the idea that this is a dream that he's been having probably for years of mm. this woman. Mm. And he finally... Sees her in the flesh. Yeah. Well, he doesn't even see her in the flesh at the beginning. It's on a monitor. It's, it's on a surveillance yep. monitor. And then he's looking for her in the flesh and can't find her. Yeah. And it becomes a And then he finds her in the flesh and then it becomes a pursuit of her. Yes. And that takes a while to win her over. Um, but he does. He wins her over. And she opens up to him. And they could have something together. Until it's all ripped apart. Until it's all ripped apart. And there is, there is, you know, when they're busted, having sex, and they're, he's taken away and she's screaming, and the picture goes to black, but... Before the scene crosses over to the next scene, we hear machine gun fire. So she's probably been killed right there. She's already, according to their record, she's already dead. Well, he arranged that, though, to kind of free her so, from the system. But I'm just but saying. Then, but then, you know, but then. So according to their paperwork, she's dead. So they might as well just. Yeah, might as well. Because if we have to. Imagine the paperwork. There's not going to be any paperwork now. Right, exactly. Yeah. Just imagine the paperwork to bring someone back to life. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just easier to kill her. Yeah. It's all, I mean, that the movie, it, it, it seems like that if it was a happy Hollywood ending, uh, which Gilliam is not interested in doing, it would have ended there with him saying, guess what? Jill Layton is dead. Yeah. Well, and remember I said to you when he did that, I was like, that's the way to do it if you really want to, like, get out of it all, you yeah. know? And, um, you, you know, you really want them to bust free and, and he wants to bust free. He keeps, he makes her, he actually, he actually does legitimately turn into, turn her into a criminal when he makes her bust through those barriers. Uh, right. And people do die. When he right. does make her it, do that, there is an explosion, and he looks back and sees someone in a hazmat suit on, on fire fi who falls. Because I think I mean that's probably just well, one of several people who died during that. Yeah, because it starts out, it's almost like his his fantasy of being a hero is coming true, and it seems to be all kind of like fun and exciting. But until he sees a, 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 yeah, and it, it, 
the it ramifications. It's a huge 180 once he looks back and says, this is oh, what... this is not fun. No. This is, this is not... This someone is not just, what I, I just... I, I just, just saw someone die yeah. because of me. Yeah. It's... So, <laughs> again, that's... that's This movie is dark. It's very, very dark. Uh, and I, from like, the very beginning, when when um, when Buttle gets taken away and his wife just she's she screams, she starts screaming at 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 Sam. I think like, why? No. Why? What? When? When does she start doing that? What did they do with his body? Oh, that's the oh. Line. She and he can't answer that. He can't answer that. He doesn't know, and no, he just keeps his, shifting his back into. Is... He, I think he's looking at something like, on the television. Yeah, he looks over at the television and he's like, uh, well, he comments on or that. something and then he's like, if they, you think there's been a mistake, I could get you the proper paperwork. He's yeah. all like... And she's she's just like, what did you do with... Oh, man, oh, man, so, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. One of, one of the cuts that was made for the U.S. version and not in the European version is that he in... The U.S. version, or is it the European version? In one of the two versions, he does not know that Buttle is dead. Mm. And in the version we watched, it's made explicitly clear that he knows. Because he's actually the one that figures out that Buttle is dead. Okay. And Okay. So that'll put a different twist on the scene. Even though it's acted the same way. It's going to have different subtext based have a on the subtext. edit. Okay. Um, okay. So, again, yeah, this movie will definitely confuse you because if you don't know what version you've seen, they are... It, it puts things into different perspectives. And very often, not well, not very often, but a majority of the times that I see um, director's cuts or alternate cuts of movies, they're not as drastically different as something like Brazil is where the ending yeah. is changed and then you have Donnie Darko is is it yeah the director's cut we find out we find out his medication is placebo in okay. the director's cut um you see uh an image of him being crucified by that airplane engine at the end okay. which you don't see uh in the other we'll version. get the Donnie Darko at some sometime point. I know um, you don't particularly like that movie no, but I, I think it, it's definitely a cult movie that uh, we could we could talk about yeah. um, on the show. Um, yeah, and it was interesting. Well, whether or not I like a movie is irrelevant for the show. We're we're here to do a show about cult movies, and mm-hmm. some movies you're gonna like, and I'm not gonna like, and vice versa. Right, so, yeah, <laughs> people under the stairs. Yeah, you said <laughs> I, I, I don't want to do people under the stairs. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. It's okay. You don't have to apologize. Like you don't have to apologize to me. Once in a blue moon, I'll pull but, that card. But I um. <laughs> this twice within the last week and that was too much for me it's <laughs> it's too much yeah it's it's yeah. a rewatchable movie but like i said over maybe once several years pass right and watch because, it again because you do have it i've had a different perspective every time i've watched it but i've there have been years in between my right. viewings i think I, I i need to going back to what i said i, I still stand by i think this is the the quintessential Terry Gilliam movie. I think it is his best, with the caveat being his best 
does not equate to what my favorite Terry Gilliam movies are. Mm-hmm. In fact, I don't even think Brazil would crack the top five mm-hmm. of my favorite Terry Gilliam movies. I mean, it is, but it leaves... It's, it's There's something grueling about it. It is. It, it You go through this journey of Sam Lowry, you, and he was talking about how people had reactions to this movie like they just would not talk to people after watching this movie they just needed to like yeah she did chats from everyone for a while yeah and kind of digest what i just saw because if you become so invested in sam lowry you got you're shown his dreams you're shown like it it, the one of the most intimate details we're not supposed to know what someone's dreams are like yeah like we're shown his dreams yeah and then so we know what he's like when he's truly alive. Yes. And he's basically just struggling to be, is, you know, to, yeah. to struggling to live as everybody else in the movie is during his daily life. And he sees himself life. as this hero. Yeah. And he's he has this, this dream woman. Then he finally meets his dream woman and he gets his dream woman. And, and so everything goes by the wayside once he finds his dream woman. And that's why he acts... Um, ostensibly uh, irresponsibly throughout the, the, the movie is we're seeing him on a mission of love. Nothing else really matters. This world that he's been living in does not matter to him. The life he has been living so far does not matter to him. All that matters is this woman and, and that he is very much in love with. And he just, he, he sees them out of this city. He sees them out of Brazil. Right. Just a nice little farmhouse. Yeah. And they're just, they're just living their lives. Yeah. And then it turns out that this is all the result of a lobotomy. Yeah. And that's why... Well, I, at the end. Well, I at think, the I mean, the last sequence, so yes. So, like I said... Where they do find that little farmhouse. Right. So, I think this last time watching it, ending things started to kind of confuse me. I'm like, this is not the ending I remember. The ending that I had seen was the more optimistic ending of him still flying in his dream. Right, which is just an image, though. But... I mean, for real. Like, yeah. you can basically say, you know... But then... But the, but I think what lasts longer, though, which is even more impactful, is that we see that he's been lobotomized, but he seems... He seems okay with it. Well, it's hum- better. it's better than the world... It's better than the world he's been living in. So you could say in a, a way that this is actually kind of a happy ending. It's, yeah. I mean, do... do he won. Do, do, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if death... Well, he's not dead. No, he's lobotomized. Um, I'm, he, I'm not so sure. But do I you, think he's happy because he's st- he's humming the song, Brazil, mm-hmm. and he's still fantasizing. He's, so, he's escaped fully yeah, into his dreams. Yeah. That's true. But I think the downer is that he's just left in this cooling tower. His best friend leaves. The surrogate father figure, the guy in the wheelchair, who... Leaves. Leaves. He's by himself. So, he's the last alone. image that we're shown in this particular version is him alone in a cooling tower, lobotomized, humming to himself, yeah. and then the credits roll. Yeah. And instead and of going to black, the credit... Well, it's we still in the, that water tower. The, yes, we stay and there. No, and no, and, yeah, no image of him flying in the sky. No, 
Yeah. That's why, that's what I think the ending is so, like, depressing. Yeah. Because I think that if it, if they faded to, even if not they faded to the clouds, even if they faded to black, it would not have been as depressing. As just sitting there seeing that, those huge, that huge space. Right. Yeah. He's all alone. Yeah. He's been robbed of his, like, basic motor functions. He's left with his imagination. And the fact that this is an empty cooler, cooling tower, it's such a huge empty space. Yeah. It's just like, and then the way that it's shot, it's, he, he is so small. And I think that's kind of, you could kind of say that's all that's left of him mentally. Yeah. That little speck right there. Yeah. And the rest of this cooling tower has been obliterated. Yeah. By the Ministry of Information. Yeah. You know, yes, 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 and yes. Uh, if I recall correctly, it's a similar type of space that Patrick Stewart goes to in the X-Men movies to do all of his mind stuff. Cerebro, yeah. 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 It reminded me of yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, also, have you... But it's, you know, but I mean, what's the real... What's the real victory if it's just in your mind? That's the big question. Sure. You know, and I... I I think of um, a couple things that you've said and made me think of the movie Chicago, which is basically a lot of it is very much in her mind. Um, and you were talking about how reactions uh, can make a scene more interesting and her reactions are very interesting in that respect. But that's another movie where it's all in her mind. She does turn it into a reality at the end. But, um, you know, we're dealing with scenarios here where you're at odds with reality and you're trying to you're trying to fix it. You're trying to deal with it. You're trying and, to cope with it. Yeah. And you're trying to come up with an alternative. So let me just rattle. Can I rattle the rest of these off? Sure, go for it. Trust in haste. Regret at leisure. Boy, <laughs> these I like are that. crazy. Trust at leisure. Regret in haste. Well, it. So really, so it's well, a contradiction. I mean, the whole Ministry of Information is a contradiction. Yeah, it's. Don't suspect. Oh, we already did that. Beware before. Beware after. Trust in security. And then one they one that they have left out is we're in this together, which I saw throughout the movie. And I see that a lot now, especially with the COVID stuff and the mask stuff. Every time I'm, I'm going to take an Uber, I see masked uh, cartoon figures saying we're in this together. And I think they're re- reinstating the mask mandate on ma- Monday. That's what I've heard. So another another. Uh, Current, current, current connection. I'll show you my favorite t-shirt after we're done okay. um, recording this. But, yeah, so Brazil, prolific? Not really. Because well, what, it I was don't very... even know what I'm saying when I say the word prolific. I'm not even sure what that means. But I think, uh, well, when I think prolific, I was, it was like I said, a, a lot of people say that this movie is ahead of its time. But, but as Gilliam said, that this was just... This is just what he saw at the time. And if you you might pay attention to different things than he did. He happened to pay attention to the bureaucracy going on. And he did, like I said, he took for a lot from his personal life with the, the, plast, the, the plastic surgery stuff and like the absurd behavior of taping your dog's butthole shut. It's just like, it's so absurd. But... But it's it's all kind of like repression too. Even plastic surgery, you're just kind of like repressing your natural self, you know, when you're doing that to to don 
you know, something uh, that's 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 not real, you know. So in terms of repression, too, there is a scene. And I wanted to bring this up when we so there's the scene where he defeats the samurai. It reveals the uh, under the mask that the samurai is himself. Then there's a scene where he thinks he's talking to his mother, and it turns out to be... Oh, that's right. It's Jill. Yeah. Which I don't know. I don't think I got until this last viewing. I don't think I got that. That might be something that, yeah, that might be something that was... Like an Oedipal thing going on? I yeah, don't know. Yeah, very... I don't know. That isn't... Like, what is that? Yeah. Why does she turn into her in this dream sequence at the very end? To, for him, Gilliam kind of shrugs it off as something he's just like kind of giving into his Oedipus, like okay. maybe his not his own Oedipus complex, but just giving into the character's Oedipus complex. Because okay. I think it's very interesting, and I will mention this: it's a very personal film. But um, I'm going to read this this quote from Mr. Jack Matthews, Sam Lowry. Brilliantly portrayed by Jonathan Price is the flip side to Gilliam's own personality. Sam is an unambitious, mid-level bureaucrat trying to stay out of trouble while being haunted by reoccurring dreams of a beautiful woman beckoning to him and a metallic flame-spouting samurai attempting to squash him. The woman represents hope and the samurai the system. When Sam sees his dream girl's likeness in the face of the woman he is respects, suspects of being a terrorist... He recklessly pursues her and brings upon himself the wrath of the system. But I just wanted to go back to the beginning of that. Terry Gilliam is extremely ambitious. Not a bureaucrat. He's just... I also think that he's working out a lot of his frustration of working within the Hollywood system. Sure. In this movie. Sure. I, I, I think sure. the, the amount of paperwork, the red tape mm -hmm. of of trying to work, like he, you know, he, he dreamed and aspired as a young kid to be to be able to make movies. Right. You just want your you just want to see your dream come to fruition. That's all you want. And you then, know, and it's like it's might it might not happen because of all of the journey along the way. That and you I have think to take. I unjustly said the balls of him to release ads and variety you know in hindsight i that's that's just imagine putting your passion years of your life into this movie to be put on a shelf in universal mm -hmm. and then to not only have it be put on the shelf but like have the critics recognize what a genius work it is mm -hmm. and have it not be released and not like how does that work out financially like <laughs> it just—it's bad. Like it's, that's a lot of money. Fifteen. Well, you know, adjusted maybe, but still a lot of money. So I don't, you, you were, know, I don't know how Hollywood. Ha I don't know how Hollywood has the balls to not release a movie that costs so much. So I was three, so I had no idea. But did, were you aware of this movie being advertised prominently at the time? I was aware of it enough. I was aware of it enough in the eighties. But you had to see it at art house. So. I saw it at an art house cinema. It was not a mainstream cinema, mm. um, which was the case for a lot of movies, even even movies that had been released mainstream 
I wouldn't be able to see unless I went to the art house. Water, it was the Railroad Square Cinema in Waterville, Maine. I don't think it exists anymore. I miss that place so much. Uh, and so there were movies that were released mainstream that I saw there. But Brazil, I don't think I saw advertised anywhere else. But I was aware of it. And, okay. I, and I, recognized, I recognized its importance um, through cultural osmosis even back then. Right. I think also I remember distinctly, it's not the art that I have here for the Criterion, but the the art for like the VHS and the theatrical poster is the character of Sam Lowry, the big smile on his head, but like his head's exploding. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's perfect, really, isn't it? It is. That's a great poster. That's a great image. Yeah. It, and it yeah. sticks with you. Yeah. And um, uh, not to say that the, I don't like the art for the Criterion, but it's it's... It's the image of him as the hero flying. Mm -hmm. um, With Brazil and neon, too. That's kind of perfect, too. It is. Because it's, it's a neon... It's a neon state of mind. It's, it is. It's, it's a tropical Brazil, cool breezes, but in a neon form. Right. That's really how he's seeing it. Because he, maybe he's never even been to Brazil. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He probably hasn't. No, he I probably like, hasn't. I, I think that... Um, the idea of Brazil is that this could be any city at any time. Mm -hmm. um, the costumes reflect that. The technology reflects that. Yeah. It could be any time in the 20th century, the 21st century. Yeah. Um, but that's yeah. that's important because I don't think Gillian wants you getting hung up no. on on the where on the no. particulars no. of where this is taking place. It's not it's not important. It's, it's not, not important that you know where or when this is. No. You you know that it's a city and you know that it's under this influence. Um and that's that's all you need to know. Right. Cuz you can apply that. You can apply that to yourself and your own surroundings. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like I said, this movie is very much um you're on a need-to-know basis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't need to know. I like that. I like that. I like that. <laughs> and um, going back, uh, maybe we'll just wrap up with this. A cinematic mugging. What is a cinematic mugging? I guess it's drawing people into, into, the, into the cinema under almost false pretenses, depending on what the advertisement for this movie was. Um, I'm curious. I actually have never seen the trailer for this. So after we're doing this, yeah. I, I'm curious to see Me what the too. trailer was because we watched, what we did watch was the Siskel and Ebert review and the clip that they chose was ridiculous. I mean, yeah. it's, it's him going into his office for the first time as an, as, as an executive, which There's is not an unimportant scene, but it's not one that you should, uh, bait, no, bait, bait a hook with. There's no dialogue either. Right. Right, there's no nothing. No, it's a very kind of like, it's such an odd choice because uh -huh. it's almost like, uh, I could see like the people at Universal will be like, well, we really, we don't want people to like this Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what it seems like. We'll release it after 1984. Well, we won't, you know, we, we'll give this shitty ass clip for people to, to, to review and to see. We'll give it an R rating. Yeah. I mean, seriously. I, and like I was saying, when we were watching the Cisco Lieber thing, I was like, show show him flying through the sky battling a samurai. You're right. That's going to put butts in the seats. Right. Him fiddling around his little cubicle. Like no. you said, it's not a not important scene, but to get to 
be your only no glimpse at no. the movie? That that's that little scene that they showed is maybe the most like 1984 out of the whole movie. But right. it's like, but it's just it's so stark, and you know, and 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 it sits there like a lump. I mean, out of context. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not what you're going to show think to that, get people I think, into the seats. I, I think they kind of like sabotage. It sounds they seems re- that way, yeah. doesn't it? Seems they reluctantly way. released it, and Gilliam said that he had to make compromises for cuts to be made. Mm-mm. Thankfully, mm-hmm. he said more of his vision came out in the European market, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which just goes to show what. Yeah. European cinema yeah. can. It's different. Yeah, it's, it's different it, over there. It, it, it's um yeah it's interesting to see so brazil okay so i i should have said this at the beginning this is just me um name dropping but uh i saw let's see jonathan price has done some really good work um he's excellent he is excellent he is excellent i saw him i saw him do a reading of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf at the Majestic Theater. Phantom of the Opera took a night off for this because the original actress who played Martha in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on stage, it was her birthday, and so they had a special reading with her, uh, Mia Farrow, and Matthew Broderick, and it was going to be Anthony Hopkins who dropped out at the 11th hour and Jonathan Price came in as George and took over. And he was excellent. He was very, very good. So that's my zero degree of separation for (laughs) Jonathan Price. He also, I think, won a Tony for Miss Saigon where he played an Asian pimp in London and then he brought it to Broadway. Uh, And he also made a movie that I love and I haven't seen in a very long time with Emma Thompson called Carrington, which I think is based on a real person, real people. So that's a that's another good one. For some reason, he was cast as Juan Perón in Evita, which could have been a terrible miscasting mistake, but he overcame it. Um, so he is, you know, it's a testament to his acting. He's always good, always good. So yeah, Brazil. Final thoughts. I um, not my favorite Terry Gilliam movie, not by a long shot. Um, definitely. Uh, some people said it that is his darkest movie. I say to them, you clearly have not seen Tideland. Arguably, not a lot of people saw Tideland. Never even heard of it. Terry Gilliam is notoriously have like had to explore very interesting avenues to get some of his movies produced um, because he is one that likes to adhere to his vision doesn't like to compromise if he doesn't have to, knows what he wants to convey, doesn't really care if you like it or not, but he knows that in order to get these movies made that he needs funding from producers and whatnot. So, like, he's had the the nightmare of finally getting the man who killed Don Quixote made. Um, that's one that I definitely need to, to see. Other than that, I think I've seen everything thing that he's done wow and i so i've been thinking about this throughout the course of the episode what so i think that this is technically speaking and when i say technically i mean as a piece of art the direction the cinematography the sound design the costumes the sets the acting i would say is his best movie wow 
Absolutely. Wow. But, thinking upon it, not my favorite Terry Gilliam movie. And I think that I've seen this a lot with uh, mostly YouTube critics, but this is everyone's go-to favorite Terry Gilliam movie. Really? It seems. Really? Yeah. And I get it. I, I do consider it a masterpiece. Yeah, I was about to use that word. Yeah, it's a masterpiece of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm able to different, differentiate between appreciating it as a masterpiece and as a piece of art. But my favorite? No, that's something different. Yes. Sometimes those... What, mas- is, what is your favorite? What's your favorite Terry Gilliam movie? So I had the favorite Terry Gilliam movie is The Fisher King. Which I have not seen, and which is not a big movie. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's not a big budget movie. It's so brilliant. All right, and it's Um, Robin Williams and... Jeff Bridges. And Jeff Bridges, It's brilliant, and as far as... um, So in Brazil, we have a man escaping into his dreams. In The Fisher King, we have a man tormented by his dreams Mm. because his dreams are linked to memories of horrible things that happened to him in the past that are tormenting him mentally. In Fisher King? Yes. Okay. And they they but they are shown very similar similarly we have the giant samurai in Brazil that is the antagonist. We have what is the the big red knight that only he can see. Mm. chasing him down the streets of New York, and everyone mm. just thinks he's a crazy person. Mm. But in his mind, he's seeing this this massive red knight with, like, the, the lance mm-hmm. chasing him. Oh. So we definitely mm. will have to do the Fisher King on this movie. Mm. I mean, on this podcast. I would say that is my my favorite. Okay. It's... it's because there's, there's a beautiful love... There's actually two beautiful love stories going on in this movie, but there's a lot of chaos as well, as any Terry Gilliam movie said. Mm-hmm. So, um, The chaos is a big factor, isn't it? It is. Yeah, 12 Monkeys felt very chaotic to me, of course. Yes. You know, why, yep. would, why wouldn't it? It's meant to. Um, but then again, in, in, in 12 Monkeys, we have a man that is uh, having the same dream over and over again, but it turns out that it's a repressed memory. Wow. Okay. Isn't one of the main themes like a virus in that movie too? Yes. Isn't that interesting? Okay. I saw that I saw that in the middle of a blizzard in New York, I remember. Okay. Wow. All right. We're good, man. Um I would like to see Brazil again at some point, not in the recent future. So at some point where it doesn't uh bother me. As much, I would like to be able to watch it and, and think to myself, I'm not living. <laughs> I'm not living this. <laughs> now, I, need, uh, I, I actually said to you, I think after we watched it, that I need to take, I need to decompress yeah. from Brazil. Yeah. So uh, what we do here on the show is that um, we do an episode, then we watch the next movie, and... Um, and then a couple days. Yeah, we're, we're gonna watch. We're gonna watch Bad Santa now, and so, I'm gonna have another beer, and it's gonna it's gonna get fun. So, <laughs> speaking yes. So while we wrap up, this is this will be interesting. This will be an interesting uh, lead into Bad Santa. So we watched Brazil, the final cut, which may or is ostensibly the director's cut of Brazil, Terry Gilliam's vision 
he was able to incorporate all the scenes that he wanted to from the European and American versions into one final movie. We are going to watch the director's cut of Bad Santa, which I believe is about 10 minutes shorter <laughs> than the theatrical it. cut. Don't you just love it? Isn't that hilarious? Sometimes It's interesting, though, because sometimes less is more. Yeah. And, actually, and, and there's a badder Santa, isn't there, that actually has extra footage, more like more like raunchy, politically incorrect footage. There is. It. There's a badder Santa. So, yeah. So yeah. Brazil's got at least four versions, although Terry says this is the fifth, so we'll go with his taking. He says this is the fifth vi- version. So there's three versions of Bad Santa, so we're going to stick with the director's cut. And I usually like sticking with the director's cut. More often than not, though, the director's cut is throwing in more. Right. I couldn't get this scene in, so now it's in the movie. I like when a director says, you know what? This would have been better out. <laughs> Some, You know what? There's nothing wrong with saying that, you know what? I kind of mess, messed up here. And... And Terry Gilliam does admit in his commentary that sometimes he does go overboard with there's too much stuff on the screen. There's the music is too much. It's well, he's like David Lynch like that even. And David Lynch himself said he works. Oftentimes he works better if, if he has constraints. Right. So. So you bet you Brazil did have constraints from Universal. So he did. But that being but said, post, we yeah. well, we watched the final cut though. So mm-hmm. we we watched the no constraints mm-hmm. version. So um we're going to watch the constrained version of Bad Santa now. So we <laughs> we urge you to join us. Um that'll be a refreshing change of pace from well, this is a black comedy. It's a dark comedy. Yeah, but it's, it's different, it's, different though. It's just draining. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's draining. I mean, all the stuff our hero goes through and all of that stuff, you know, you go through it with him. And yeah, so would you say what is your favorite? So we'll end with this. I said the Fisher King is my personal favorite Terry Gilliam movie. What would you say yours is? I love the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, but I need to rewatch Time Bandits because I, I have a feeling that that might be my favorite one. Mm. Um, yeah, that's but my you- answer. But I love I loved I loved when I saw Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. I love that they like ride around in that bus in London. It's you know what I'm talking fun. about? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just it's just so, you know, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a lot of fun, but then again, you haven't seen The Fisher King. I have not seen The Fisher King, so um, perhaps that will become my highly I, I don't know why I'm um I've been avoiding it, but I have. Maybe it's because of Robin Williams. I've always been kind of like back and forth with him. No, I'm the same way. Mm-hmm. Listen, this podcast about Brazil. We've talked long enough. We're we're at two and a half hours. So, oh my god! So uh, bye. But thank you all for joining us for Brazil. And tune in later this week for Bad Santa: The Director's Cut. Good night.